Hey, it's Danny. I attended college in America's oldest European settlement. St. Augustine, Florida is a charming little tourist trap city. It's rich in history, hauntings, and legends. Spanish conquistador Juan Ponce de Leon is credited to discovering St. Augustine's fountain of youth roughly a half century before it was settled in 1565. Supposedly, he was on a quest to cure his impotence. There's no historical evidence Ponce de Leon was ever actually seeking the fountain. However, sometime in the mid-1800s, a mercurial lady known as Diamond Lil purchased the site of Ponce de Leon's landing and began marketing it as the fountain of youth. Today, it's one of many archaeological attractions. And while it certainly doesn't grant immortality or cure impotence, it does have a few notably attractive peacocks who occupy the park. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears, fables, myths, and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back. We're so glad you're here. And may I just say that you all look positively radiant today. I mean... Youthful, even. Glowing. Glowing, aren't they? They must have gotten the new Birchbox. Ah, Birchbox Day is a happy day. Which we are not sponsored by, unfortunately, for our budget. But you know what? Still, I will send you a referral if you're interested. (laughs) Okay, okay. But we do want to thank all of you for coming back. We want to thank everyone for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. We always appreciate that. You know, we want to remind you that you can reach out to us on all of our social media platforms, such as Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Just a Story Pod. Um, you can also go to our website, JustStoryPod.com, find out more about each week's episode, also see all of our lovely citations. And here, I thought you were going to say illustrations. That too. But while you're there, you can stop buy and find a link to our merchy merch merch store where you can buy different apparel and or accessories and or home goods and or whatever with our our my artwork on it i'm supportive you are you're the moral support that helps that happen we have a newish shirt up we have the schrodinger's cat shirt from our minutia on infinite earths episode so you can find that there for the next month or so. And it has been quite popular. Cats, who knew? And death. Who knew? People like those things. Fascinating. On the website, you can also find links to our Patreon page where you can get access to lots of mini episodes, get stickers, and help support the show. And another great way to contact us is the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. You can call the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. And once you have dialed that number, you may leave a message after the tone, just like you did back in middle school when you were calling to ask if your friend could spend the night and they hadn't gotten home yet. It was a real bummer. And when you do that, you can tell us about your favorite urban legend, tell us a joke, tell us a scary story, tell us your deepest, darkest secrets, whatever you're in the mood to tell us. We will listen. Why do you keep telling people to tell us that they should tell us their deepest, darkest secrets? It's I'm hoping someone will confess to a murder one day and I'll get to solve a crime, okay? All right, Sherlock. We all have our dreams. All right, Sam, so back to the story at hand. The story at hand and what youthful, supple hands they are. Well, thank you. No, not yours. Oh, thanks. Wait, yours are scaly. What? Like a lumberjack. Is that a good thing? No, not for a doctor. (laughs) 
It's on the Purell. So today we're going to be talking about eternal youth. So let's start off with a Mark Twain quote. Because he's my favorite. He said that life would be infinitely happier if we could be born at the age of 80 and gradually approach 18. And when the man's right, he's right. I mean, let's be honest, that would be better. If I could unmake a lot of 18-year-old mistakes, I think that my my now would probably look different. Thanks. Yeah, I guess you were one of my 18-year-old mistakes. Appreciate it. I don't even have shoes when I was 18. I bet you do. So one of the most famous stories of eternal youth takes place right here in America. America! Or supposedly it does. Okay. And that is of Juan Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth. Florida! Maybe. Oh. Well, so he was the first Spanish explorer to venture from the Caribbean, Spanish Main, that was discovered by Columbus. Oh, we are so not going to talk about Columbus right now. I don't have time and or patience for Columbus. I will, however, say that as long as we're, you know, rewriting our history and things and ruining people's heritage, I kind of like the idea that I heard tossed around last year of renaming Christopher Columbus Day or Columbus Day, like Indigenous Peoples Day. It's a great idea. I kind of do too, but, you know, we're crazy liberals. So speaking of Indigenous people, Ponce de Leon helped to brutally crush a Teano Rebellion on Hispaniola. In 1504, and for his glorious deeds, he was granted a provincial governorship and hundreds of acres of land where he used forced Indian labor to raise crops and livestock. He and Andrew Jackson would have been bros. Classy. In 1508, he received royal permission to colonize San Juan Bautista, now Puerto Rico, and he became the island's first governor a year later. But he was soon pushed out by... Diego Columbus. El Bastardo. Christopher Columbus's son. El Bastardo. So, being a conquistador, he decided that he was going to do what conquistadors do best. Conquer some indigenous people with smallpox? We already conquered some, so he had the other part of it to do. Uh, gold, glory, and God. Yes. That was kind of the rap. That's, yes. That was their deal. He was going to go on a mission to find land and gold. And he was definitely going to kill more Native Americans with smallpox, let's be honest. Well, you know, he might see if they came along willingly. What, he's going to ask nicely in a language they don't speak? Of course. Okay, I got it. And give them blankets for their troubles? So here's a story, a tell, one may say, of a Spanish voyage of discovery. Is it swashbuckling? Oh, you know it is. The loss of one wild island and wild government was of little moment. When there was a new world to be shared out, where a bold soldier like himself with sword and buckler might readily carve out new fortunes for himself. Beside, he had now amassed wealth to assist him in his plans, and, like many of the early discoverers, his brain was teeming with the most romantic of enterprises. He had conceived the idea that there was yet a third world to be discovered, and he hoped to be the first to reach its shores, and thus to secure a renown equal to that of Columbus. He met with some old Indians who gave him tidings of a country which promised not merely to satisfy the craving of his ambition, but to realize the fondest dreams of the poets. They assured him that, far to the north, there existed a land abounding in gold and in all manner of delights, but above all, possessing a river of such wonderful virtue, whoever bathed in it would be restored to youth. Wow! They added that in times past, before the arrival of the Spaniards, 
a large party of the natives of Cuba had departed northward in search of this happy land and this river of life, and having never returned. It was concluded they were flourishing and renovated youth, detained by their pleasures of that enchanting country. Okay, this is like telling someone that their dog went to go live on a farm. Don't you think? Oh, we'll get there. Okay. The dreams of the alchemist realized... One had but to find this gifted land and revel in the enjoyment of boundless riches and perennial youth. Juan Ponce de Leon listened to these tales with fond credulity. He was advancing in life, and the ordinary term of existence seemed insufficient for his mighty plans. Could he but plunge into this marvelous fountain or gifted river and come out with his battered, war-worn body, restored to the strength and freshness and suppleness of youth, and his head still retaining the wisdom and knowledge of age? What enterprises might he not accomplish in the additional course of vigorous years ensured to him? It might seem incredible at the present day that a man of years and experience could yield any faith to a story which resembles the wild fiction of an Arabian tale. But the wonders and novelties breaking upon the world in that age of discovery almost realized the illusions of fable, and the imagination of the Spanish voyagers had become so heated that they were capable of any stretch of credulity. Now... Though he had failed in finding the fairy fountain of youth, he had discovered in place of it the important country of Florida. So Florida started crazy. Yes. Cool. So that story... That's the story. ...is by, and of course I took just parts of it, Washington Irving. Of all people. Now let's take a moment to recall what uh, Washington Irving's mission in life was. Ah, to create the great American tradition. So he needed some mythology for his American tradition. He needed stories and fables and tales of old. Yes, and this sure was one. It was a hell of a story. Yep. And so Irving did travel to Spain and used Spanish sources to construct this book, which was not only about Ponce de Leon, but about other Spanish conquistadors. Bully for... Irving. Right, it's called The Spanish Voyage of Discovery. And it's hella well written. Well, that's kind of his shtick, right? It's great. I, I think he's a great writer. <laughs> like, I'd only read Sleepy Hollow before doing this show, and now I like, want to go read much more. I had a similar discovery about Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, after high school. Uh, Scarlet Letter's amazing. I know, but you have to read it, and so you don't appreciate it so much. That happens so often with high school assigned reading. I realized, like, wow so much more. So now the ever important question, what really happened? Uh, nothing good. Nothing good ever came of drinking local water. Well, so he was granted permission by King Ferdinand to seek the wealthy land of Banini. Or Bamini. Or Bamimida. What? Why has it got different names? Because it, it is written about in different spellings. Okay. And this is not the current island of Bimini. Now, they'd heard of this land from natives, but most likely scholars think that they were referring to this wonderful land with a fantastic civilization. That They were referring to the Yucatan Peninsula and the Mayan civilization. That would make sense. Pretty magnificent. Which Ponce Leon and Christopher Columbus's logs have evidence that the Teano Indians and the Calusa uh, Indians in Florida had knowledge of the Mayan culture and civilization. It makes you wonder if they were vacationing there or something. Or trading, even, yeah. you know? I mean, we're only now learning about how fantastic the seamanship of some of these ancient cultures were. I just had, like, a Moana flashback. Sorry. Yeah, Moana. I mean, it's like... 
I think that's a fantastic example. <laughs> Thank you, Lin-Manuel Miranda, for that. Now, in this charter given by King Ferdinand, there's no mention of the Fountain of Youth. Well, it's debatable on the mention of slaves. Different sources say different things. Like they were going to enslave these people? Like, how many he got? Oh, okay. But they definitely listed out how they were going to split up the gold. It's key. But nothing about the Fountain of Youth. Okay. Most people think, and it makes complete logical sense, he was going to find a new land so he could be governor, since old Diego Columbus kicked him out of Puerto Rico. Diego. It's bad hombre. So he had three well-provisioned ships. He did bring his horse along so that he could, you know, impress. The locals, yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly no. right. Yeah. Um, it's seamen, soldiers, and went on. Kind of traveling through that area, identifying many islands. I hate to say discovered. <laughs> People were living there. We identified them and mapped them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And found the area of La Florida. Ah. Which is named because he found it in the Easter season. Pascua Florida in Spanish. But he really didn't discover Florida. Of course, there are no Americans there. But not even through the Western explorers. It was sighted by Portuguese navigators and probably also by the Cabot sailing from England. And it started appearing on maps as early as the 1500s, and his mission was in 1513. And by 1510, it had this kind of peninsular shape jutting out. I'm not very impressed so far with his navigational prowess or ability to hold on to governorships. (laughs) He's not really winning so far. So you can see the area of Florida in maps from 1511, and it's named Bimini. Ah. And one of these maps is done by Peter Martyr, who wrote this apocryphal tale, or told it to Fernando Figueroa. And this starts to tie the land of Florida, or Bimini, to the Fountain of Youth, saying a Lucian servant. Like Lucifone? Like... I think so. Okay. Also servant. Yeah, I'm not feeling like he was there very voluntarily, but whatever, continue. Called Andreas, says that when his father was broken by age, he left his native island near Florida, attracted by the report of the power of that spring and the hope of prolonging his life. He set out for the desired spring, where he made a stay of some time, drinking and following the treatment indicated by the bathers. He returned home strengthened and with his manhood renewed, for he married again and had sons. Well, lucky duck. You found Viagra Hot Springs. That's a good point. Did they find out that horny goatweed grew wild along the banks of the spring? <laughs> yes, it's native to Florida gas station. <laughs> along with purple drink. Now, speaking of the Viagra powers <laughs> of this fountain of youth, now this does get tied to Ponce de Leon in that manner. What? This is where it finally gets tied to him in 1535. So... Ad hoc verbal staging, we shall call this. Oh, it's not verbal. It's written. <laughs> so, so libel versus slander. Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo wrote in his Historia General about Ponce's searching for the Fountain of Youth as a cure for his El Inflacacimiento del Saxo. <laughs> that sounds like a dirty joke. Does it mean flaccid sex? <laughs> it means his, his uh, yes, his, his ED. <laughs> now I see why doctors are so fond of acronyms and initialisms. So this children's story, this American mythology, 
really stems from the fact that somebody knew that Ponce de Leon had ED and went looking for a magical mystery cure. But he didn't. How do you know that? He had four kids at the time. (laughs) Maybe his servants had four kids at the time. That's nice. More better evidence. The guy that wrote it. Didn't like him. He was a Diego Columbus fan. (gasps) Treason. And their families fought at court. Okay. So, libel. Most likely. Now, people did start to say, well, maybe he was searching for it for King Ferdinand, who was starting to get quite old at the time. Did he not have heirs or something? It doesn't matter if you have heirs. You don't want to die. (laughs) He's 61. He was 61 at the time of the voyage at this time. Oh, yeah. He's basically 122. Yeah, that's double the average life expectancy. Yeah. Now, the next person to write about the Fountain of Youth and Ponce de Leon's connection to it was Don Hernando de Escalante de Fontaneda. And he, I love how you pronounce Spanish like my French. French. It's my it's favorite. Happens. They're all Latin languages. <laughs> the language of romance. Say it like Puss in Boots. Romance. No. <laughs> the name. Do it like that. No. I thought we were saving this for later. Au revoir. Say it like one of the French girls. So, Fontaneda was shipwrecked on the Florida Keys around 1549. He was only 13 years old, and lucky for him, the natives did not kill him. That is a lucky day. And he lived with them for 17 years until he was finally rescued on the west coast of Florida in 1566. Is that being rescued at that point, or is it just like, I think I'm going to make a different life choice? Like, I mean... (laughs) I've always wanted to see Spain. Well, so later on in 1575, he wrote his memoirs about his life among the Indians. And it contained the account of Ponce de Leon's search for the Fountain of Youth. So it probably is like mostly his fault. Well, so Fontaneda also reported a migration of Indians from Cuba to Florida in the early 16th century that were allegedly looking for the miraculous water sought by Ponce de Leon. Sound familiar? Yes. Movement of the Indians did occur. This did happen, mm-hmm. but they were not searching for water or a fountain of youth. Were they just trying to get away from people? They were escaping. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> so these were people that had escaped enslavement in Hispaniola, Cuba, Puerto Rico area. And so they gained refuge with the Calusa Indians and most likely why Ponce Leon met Spanish speaking Native Americans whenever he arrived in Florida. Handy. Holy shit, they speak my language. I knew this was divine intervention. Of course. And, and you know, when he's like, hey, do you know where the Fountain of Youth is? And I'm like, um. That way. Over there. Away from us. Away from us. As far away from us as that little horsey horse is going to carry you, pony man. Over the gator pit. <laughs> you see, you have to act, but you can't go around it. No, no, no. <laughs> it's in the middle. Around the gators solemnly nodding in agreement everyone behind the guy talking yes i see it well in my mind's eye so antonio de herrera was the spanish king's chief historian of the indies and in 1601 he penned a detailed and widely read account of ponce leon's first voyage and he only referred to the fountain of youth in passing writing that it turned old men to boys but that's actually what really solidified his the connection because mm. it was widely read and this is what Irving read and used because you know how awesome Irving is? He cites his motherfucking sources. 
I knew I liked this guy. In the book, there are footnotes and citations, <laughs> even in a like obviously fictionalized yeah, like version of the yeah. story. I went to kiss his face. But it's really, you know, it's Washington Irving's tale that has become the solidified myth in America. Right. Like, there's something about it, the tone of it, that reminds me of those cartoons that, like, the six-minute cartoons that were part of the Mickey Mouse canon, where the professor pulls up his chalkboard, Ludwig von Drake. You know, he flips over his chalkboard and starts explaining, these three of the Española, or whatever it is. And Yeah. You know. Then it cuts to Goofy, like, with a pack on his back and a conquistador helmet. I'm going to, like, find out this is real after I talk about it. Probably is. Probably but it just, is. like, there's something about it that has that same kind of tone where it's, like, factual, but you know it's fun. and Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the story that is told to kids. And that is in freaking textbooks. Oh, definitely. Not that we're going to go into what's right in textbooks, but... They're the kind of just a story. Kind of <laughs> we could do... It. It's just a story, high school, history, textbook edition. <laughs> And be here for 57 hours. That would be a great podcast. If someone took like a history book from 20 years ago and just took a chapter and just like read it. Fact checked it. Fact checked it. So we're going to give this textbook 17 Pinocchios. So this is purely just gossip around Spanish exploration. Like this is Spanish. It's where it comes from. And also later Irving. So I guess American. So Spanish and American. And we have the story. Poof, boom, bang. Well, the story of Ponce de Leon and the Fountain of Youth is definitely okay. an, a kind of Spanish slash American slash American invention. You know, definitely latched on and kept it going. But there's like there are monuments and stuff in St. Augustine to all this, right? Yes. In St. Augustine, you can visit the Fountain of Youth. Does it park. work? Oh, there's water. <laughs> You can buy a bottle and fill it up. Super, like Lords, but with less Mary. Sure. <laughs> the thing Sorry, is, I made you scoff. The thing is, Ponce never went to St. Augustine. Why? 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 But I know that. <laughs> but I know that apocryphal information. Why is it taking up, like, memory space if it's not true? Well, so it was the plutocrat Henry Flagler who, like every good American, was raised on Washington Irving and loved these stories, who brought the name back up in St. Augustine and named his hotel after Ponce de Leon. Big, lavish hotel. uh uh-huh. Which never made money. <laughs> eventually Aww. closed in the 1880s. But now the Fountain of Youth tourist attraction has been around for more than a century. <laughs> there are several instances of it being used as an attraction as early as the 1860s. But its current form originally was started by Luella de McConnell in 1904. Oh, she sounds very into her Spanish heritage. Oh, she is a woman that you would love, Samantha. First of all, she paid for the land using diamonds and cash. Get it, Mama. I love her. Well, she was born in 1870 in Baltimore, and she was a practicing physician in Chicago. Shut up. When in 1898, she succumbed to the gold rush, fever, and relocated to Dawson, a trading post that became capital of the Yukon Territory. (laughs) So she was very outspoken. Was she shrill? I think they called her that because (laughs) they didn't like her and they passed laws to where she couldn't practice medicine in the area. Bitches. So that's whenever Diamond Lil, as she was known... I want to be her friend. In 1904, moved to St. Augustine and bought this land. 
and created the Fountain of Youth tourist attraction. She was quite a tail spinner. As all good Diamond Lils should be. And she fabricated many stories about the Fountain of Youth Park. So in the late 1920s, after she died, it was bought by a Georgia preacher's son, Walter Fraser. Fraser? Yes. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to this later. Really? Yeah. Not planned. No. Now, whenever he bought this land, he kept up the tourist attraction. It was just one of those roadside attractions. And he decided he was also going to plant some orange trees. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he had someone doing, you know, planting the trees for him whenever they discovered something. Gold. Bones. <gasps> so it doesn't work, is what you're saying? I guess not. So the police were called, and it was a quickly established that the remains were Native American, and they called the Smithsonian, and the Smithsonian did the dig. Cool. They revealed the entire area was covered with the graves of the first Christianized Native Americans in the United States. Some estimates place the number of barrels at over 4,000. Holy cow. And they also found that the pattern of burials revealed the location of the 1587 Franciscan mission of Nombre de Dios, the first Christian mission in the United States. So this is why St. Augustine is the oldest mm-hmm. continual city. settlement. Yeah. yeah. So he thought he was buying the Fountain of Youth and actually found the Fountain of History. I think it's crazy this land was just bought up by people. And then it's like, oh, wait, no, this was the original settlement in the United States. That is crazy. It's actually crazy. But Diamond Lil probably knew. She probably told people that. No one believed her. No one believed her. I thought she was just some kook. I'm sorry, but Diamond Lil sounds like Diamond Lil. You know, like Lil Diamond. Like She was probably like the original G. She is OG. Oh, she was. OG. OG. <laughs> she was. I mean, look, she was like, I'm just going to go to the Yukon Territory. Had enough of this medicine. This is you, actually. <laughs> Had enough of this practicing medicine shtick. Could go dick for gold. Hey, okay, so... We know where the St. Augustine Fountain of Youth mythos comes from. That makes sense. But the Fountain of Youth is not a purely Ponce de Leon idea. He's just heavily associated with it, right? Correct. It is actually an ancient, ancient idea. Of course it is. Think about it. Yeah, what's what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Well, you could die. What if we could fix that? How would you like... Would that increase your satisfaction with your experience? I feel like you're taking a customer survey. Give it a tin smiley face. Dislike, man. Dislike death. So without a doubt, European and American writers inserted this into our New World folklore mythos. But it is a much older myth. Now Mm -hmm. remember, Mm -hmm. Washington Irving, what did he say this tale sounded like? Oh, he says it sounds Arabian. But Irving had a fascination with immortality and like, like Van Winkle and stuff. Like that kind of makes sense for him. He was definitely fascinated. Well, the thing is, this is... An Arabian tale. Like the Fountain of Youth is an Arabian yes, tale? Well, yes. of course he knew that. I think he knew that. Now, there is some writing. The Greeks, Herodotus wrote about kind of a Fountain of Youth thing, but that's really like the only citation. You see it a lot in this like kind of Eurasian, Middle Eastern mythology. Okay. And where it probably came into Europe was in these early Arabic epic romances of Alexander the Great. Oh, well, this all makes sense. So this was introduced into Europe with the Moors. The Moops. The Moops. Correct. <laughs> and there's a French account. So there, of course, it was translated many times. This was very popular. Mm-hmm. And the French account of Alexander finding the magical fountain of youth reads, After passing through a land that was so hot that they were burnt by their saddles, 
and they entered another land, which was full of beautiful flowers and green meadows, and there was the dear fountain of youth, of sweet water that rejuvenated four times a day. The old warriors entered the fountain, more than forty-six bathed in it, and when they came out, they were aged thirty and like the best knights. Then the other old man, who had led the king, and showed him all the marvels of the earth, came before him and said, King, good is the fountain we led you to. See how old and bent we are? We have lived more than a hundred years, and now you will see us in another guise. They entered the fountain and bathed four times, prescribed. They left the fountain rejoicing, and when they returned to Alexander, he could hardly recognize them. So young they were. So I'm guessing since Alexander the Great does not live to a ripe old age while still looking young, that it does not ensure immortality, it just kind of reverses aging. In some versions, especially in the romances of Alexander the Great. And so, of course, you have this Moorish story, and you have the Spanish. Mm -hmm, (laughs) It's not mm -hmm. hard to see where the idea came into the zeitgeist. Now, there's another apocryphal letter. Love those. That's so much fun. Talking about the wonders of the Middle East and Asia. Mm -hmm. And it was anonymous, and it's called the Letter of Prester John. And it first appeared in 1165. Prester John, that's a whole episode, man. Oh, it sure is. But it told of legendary Christian prince who lived around, like, maybe Ethiopia or the Far East and the middle, kind of Middle East area. Uh-huh. And a 13th century elaboration of the letter reports that the miraculous spring is located on an island in the extreme meridian of the world. The long-lived people drew from its waters, lasting health and renewal of youth. The far meridian of the world. Yes. Interesting. So that places it. Does that mean, like, the new world? It could be. It could be interpreted that way. Huh. Especially if you're thinking about it in the light of all of this new world discoveries, all these amazing things they're finding. So it's that old saying, like, when you have eliminated the impossible, what is left is the truth kind of thing. And there had not been a lot of elimination happening at this point. No, they were only finding new things. It was expanding. Now, other myths were transposed on the new world, mm. such mm-hmm. as the Amazonians. Ah, which, of course, first appeared in Greek mythology. Herodotus, again, wrote about it. And we all know that that's, you know, just Wonder Woman. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So Herodotus wrote Wonder Woman, is what you're telling me. Oh, we know who wrote Wonder Woman. We do. <laughs> so Herodotus placed them in the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. Marco Polo placed them on an island in the Indian Ocean. Arab geographer Al Idrisi in 1150 placed the Amazons on an island in the Atlantic. Interesting. But Columbus... <laughs> Place them into the new world. Near the, the Amazon? Maybe, yeah, of course. <laughs> so Columbus reported the Indians told him of a nearby island inhabited only by women. And in other log entries, the Indians stated the name of the island was Matinino, and it lay somewhere east of Española. So he figured this must be the Amazonians. I mean, what else? <laughs> Clearly. Then, of course, you have the seven cities of Cibola. Uh-huh. The cities of gold. Oh, we are very, very familiar with this. That Coronado went looking for. Right, and one of the entrances to the city of El Dorado was supposed to be under Enchanted Rock in Texas. So this is a story that is from Spain and the Moors again, where whenever the Moors conquered Cibola, seven bishops and the king escaped with the wealth of the city and the relics of the city. 
and went on originally to establish one city or two cities and eventually seven cities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Seven cities of wealth and gold. Man, this gets co-opted. We can't talk about this too much because I'm going to do it. We're not going to go into it. Because I'm like, Templars, Templars, Templars. (laughs) But whenever they, you know, heard of the great wealth of these other civilizations, like the Mayans and things Mm -hmm, like that, mm -hmm. they were like, oh, well, this must be. This must be the seven cities of Cibola. Clearly, this is where they went. And now we shall go to and plunder. Plunder party. Guys, get on the bed. We're going plundering. Now, it's hard to say if the Native Americans really had an idea of the Fountain of Youth. Contemporaneous sources say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such as a Geronimite priest, Ramon Payne, who came to the New World with Columbus on his second voyage, and Columbus instructed him to go learn the language and investigate their customs and beliefs. And he reported the Teano myth of creation was in some respects like the Judeo-Christian tradition. The creation myth also included a great flood, in which the creation of fishes is attributed to the son of the supreme being. And although waters played a prominent role in all the New World Indian mythology, there are really no accounts about a mythical island with a rejuvenating fountain that Ponce Leon was um, pointed to. Right. A lot of the Native American mythology I've read over the last year or so does have, you know, older characters appearing younger and that kind of thing, but it's almost like a merit-based system. There's no cure-all. There's not a lot of cure-all in Native American mythology, actually. Cure-all always comes later. Okay, so... I'm assuming since I have not run into Ponce de Leon, and I feel like, you know, I would have, clearly, he did not find eternal youth nor eternal life. He didn't. And he also didn't find any gold in Florida. <laughs> so he came back, and then when he heard he was about... the worst. <laughs> it wasn't that great. When he heard about Cortez finding all his gold... Got pissed. He's like, I'm doing this shit again. And he went on another voyage. And on this voyage is whenever he achieves a good old American... Tradition. Oh no. Claimed something that wasn't his. He ate a cheeseburger. He gained 500 pounds. He got a reality show. What'd he do? He started fights with the indigenous people. Ah, ah. Firing the first shots. And what would turn into a 300 year war. Shut up, Ponce. You're the worst. The worst. And side note more American soldiers would die trying to subdue Florida than it. All the Indian battles in the West. Florida. So he doesn't find any gold and he gets shot by an arrow in the leg. Nah. And comes to, I assume, sepsis in Havana and dies. He's the worst. So Washington Irving says, The irritations of humiliated pride and disappointed hope exasperated the fever of his wound and he died soon after his arrival at the island. Thus fate, says one of the quaint old Spanish writers. <laughs> Delights to reverse the schemes of man. The discovery that Juan Ponce flattered himself was to lead to a means of perpetuating his life at the ultimate effect of hastening his death. Ah, irony. A fantastic literary device in the hands of a fantastic writer. Used to full effect by citing a quaint old Spanish writer. (laughs) So while our good old friend Juan Ponce Leon does not find any sort of fountain of youth, that did not stop people in Europe from trying to discover the elixir of life. While Juan Ponce, as I'm going to call him, Juan Ponce was the worst. I have for you the greatest. The greatest? It's not Muhammad Ali. Oh, damn. This is taking a turn. (laughs) 
He floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee. Rope-a-dope. Rumble in the jungle. There was a rumble in the jungle. Uh, yes. Pons dies. Pons kind of got rope doped <laughs> But anyway. He tried the rope dope and failed miraculously. Miraculously? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's talk about Count St. Germain. St. Germain. One of the most famous and infamous immortals. Ba-da-da. We watched the In Search of about this. It's epic. If you would like to preview that before you listen to this section, you are welcome to pause. Go do that. It's done in the style of The Office. <laughs> like they're fake interviews with all the... It's so bad. Anyway. All the people in costume. Anyway, go on. The popular account of St. Germain's arrival in the popular consciousness of Europe begins with one Madame de Pompadour. She sounds epically French. She is. She is the mistress of King Louis XV of France. Now, he is between the Sun King and the Oh No French Revolution King. So, the Count appears in Paris around 1750, and he wore diamond rings on each of his fingers and dressed all in black. And he was described as very handsome. And he told tales of far-off adventures and displayed great wealth and dazzling charm. Madame de Pompadour was the center of intellectual and social life in the Paris court. And she decided who was in favor and what was in fashion. So when the Count was introduced at one of her parties, everyone was mesmerized. He was in. He was in. And he approached an elderly Countess, Countess von Georgie. And the Countess mentioned that she'd known a man of the same name and appearance 40 years before in Venice. Oh, yes, I've met him. He is quite lovely. I imagine that must have been your father, she said. And the Count shook his head and said, no, madame. And that was I myself. (gasps) Gasps. Gasps. The Countess was shocked. In front of her was a man who couldn't be more than 45. And she'd known him 40 years before in Venice. And he'd been the same age. Impossible. It is not impossible, smiled Count St. Germain. He told the Countess in very accurate detail how they'd met in Venice nearly a half century before. Due to the Countess and the chatty nature of the court, rumors of the ageless Count were quickly popular topic of gossip and eventually louis the 15th heard these stories and invited the count to dinner and at this banquet the count ate nothing and he drank nothing he was rumored to live only on oatmeal and a strange homemade tea that he drank frequently maybe he was kellogg (laughs) (laughs) definitely did he offer anyone a yogurt enema not at dinner (laughs) that was later madame pompadour i'll meet you later Sacre bleu. Let's get some yogurt in that pompadour. Oh. However, he thrilled dinner guests with his knowledge of history, speaking languages fluently, such as Swedish, Portuguese, French, Italian, German, Spanish, Russian, and some Chinese, Sanskrit, and Arabic. He was, you know, he was just like making it up. Like, ching tong tong. I speak Chinese. <laughs> He speaks Chinese. Can you believe it? Look at him. He's so wise. Now, he was a master violinist and a whiz with a harpsichord. And he was also apparently a very accomplished painter and had a talent for painting jewels, which were remarked upon for their striking realism. Now, he prescribed various remedies for wrinkle removal and hair dyeing. But there were always these funny accounts that kept popping up that called into question the age of the man. He would speak of times long past as if he had been there. And he reportedly told an acquaintance who made a comment that something, some math, would make him 
at least a hundred years old. He said, that is not impossible. Now he claimed he had been there when Jesus turned water into wine, and he had met Emperor Nero, King Henry VIII, and said that Mary, Queen of Scots, was a real looker. (laughs) Really? I bet he did. He also said that, he's talking about Jesus, and he said, I always knew Christ would come to a bad end. Smart ass. I know, he's so tongue-in-cheek. Now, he claimed to be more than 300 years old, and he claimed he could melt diamonds. And being King Louis XV, the king said, of course he's 300 years old. Of course he can melt diamonds, because let them eat cake and melt diamonds. This monarchy makes sound decisions and will surely last forever. So during his lifetime, he allegedly befriended, or at least Facebook friended. There were peeps. Voltaire. Casanova, Catherine the Great of Russia, Anton Mesmer, George Washington, which is weird and I can't find a lot of supporting evidence there, Louis XV, Madame Pompadour, various and sundry. He had an impressive social media network. He did. He was the king of LinkedIn. God, he's requesting me again. Now, he did have an extensive knowledge of chemistry. Chemistry, in scare quotes. Well, it is chemistry because alchemy is the beginning of chemistry. Okay. It's when people start to go, hey, if we mix these different chemicals, maybe we can make things. And he did make things. King Louis XV gave the Count this massive suite of rooms at Chateau Chambord, which was about 100 miles outside of Paris. And apparently there was a laboratory there. And the official purpose of the laboratory was to create synthetic fabric dye, which is very progressive science. Well, they were excited because they thought it would make the fabric industry. Boom. Yeah. So it's like, even if you could just do that, even if you take it from a surface level, that would be amazing. Right. And he he did do a lot of really interesting things with pigment. Like, he had a lot of knowledge of that set of processes. But think about it. Like, arsenic. Arsenic green. And there's a purple. It's like manganese purple or something like that. It's a... Manganese is purple. Right. And it was used to dye a lot of purple garments and stuff. But at this time, you know, none of that was around. And so whatever he's doing, if he's not actually crushing indigo flowers to make pigment, he's like, wow, magic. Yeah, he's creating synthetic dyes. Allegedly. The goings-on at this laboratory in Chambord were much more fantastical. Of course than even creating synthetic fabric dyes. He could allegedly fuse several small diamonds together into one big diamond, which was a cool thing to do. And he could mm, apparently remove the flaws in diamonds, which there are chemical processes that will do that. If there's any kind of a crack in the surface or any facet of the jewel and you submerge it in certain acids, sometimes it can get rid of internal flaws. Interesting. So that's not that crazy. Making one big diamond, kind of crazy. Yeah. But if he had any means of making a synthetic one, he could pocket all the small diamonds and hand you a real... Right. But anyway, I digress. So he had this magic gem stuff. He also could do some metal smelting that turned ordinary metals into a gold-appearing substance that he never said was gold. Alchemy. But sure it looked cool. I'm sure he didn't say it wasn't. <laughs> Ask me no questions, I tell you no lie. But one of the other projects that he had going on in his Chambord laboratory, his Chambord laboratory, was looking for the Philosopher's Stone. Ah, the great goal of alchemy. Correct. Some people conjectured that the reasons there were so many 
stories about his age and that he lived on so little food and that he, you know, said he'd hung out with Christ. Was Christ. The, Christ. And I knew that guy. That is freaking hippie. He was a Capricorn. He ate organic foods. But anyway, they said it was because he'd already discovered the Philosopher's Stone and he had created the Elixir of Life. And he was, you know, immortal. But now he was in search of the stone for the king, the king of France, and he had to find it. And 20 years of his life would be dedicated to this pursuit. So the Philosopher's Stone, other than being part of the Harry Potter mythos. Right. And it's like the first one. And I'm like, if you have that, you really don't need the rest of the series. But whatever. Was kind of that ultimate goal of alchemy. Create a powder stone that could turn metals like lead into gold. So kind of define alchemy. Is alchemy just chemistry magic well there's a lot more than that i mean i said it did lead into chemistry because they were using different elements and combining them and kind of getting that early idea of chemistry but no it's much more of a mysticism around it it's very heavily tied to like astrology and a lot of older ideas about mythology it was the original new age ah it would take pieces from whatever culture it wanted to and just mix it up and hope gold came out (laughs) But while, of course, the Philosopher's Stone is important in general in alchemy, one of the other big important things that one could achieve was creating the elixir of life. And are they the same thing or are they different things? Now, there, no one knows, of course, how to create the elixir of life. Wait, what? At least no one's telling. <laughs> then why am I sending my, my money in gold to that guy in Quebec that I saw on an infomercial at 3 a.m.? What? Nothing. Huh? Is that the charge? Life forever on the credit card. Um, Jean-Luc tells no tales, okay? Now, there is a book, The Mutus Liber, which is one of the most famous alchemical works that consists of 15 engravings that demonstrates a man and a woman performing a sequence of chemical processes that would lead to creation of... The elixir of life? Yeah. Okay, well, first of all, girls, get your STEM training on because apparently you are needed for this process. Well, definitely. And now it has no text. Fun. So, so a, it's a coloring a, book. Yes, a true alchemist could interpret it. And because reasons. It. Because mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, a 15th century alchemical text by Bernard Trevisan says that to create the elixir of life, you have to have the philosopher's stone... And you drop it into mercurial water. Oh, mercury was all the rage. Yeah, Quicksilver. But like, really, wouldn't you think mercury was magic if you just saw it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, interestingly, the word elixir is of Arabic origin. Oh, that is interesting. We're back to our Arabian tales. Yeah, so it's not found in Europe in the 7th century. Fancy. Is that a Crusades thing? Probably more like traitors. A Marco Polo thing. Yeah. Because I am familiar with charlatanry, I'm going to say that there was one dude who found it one time and then disappeared forever. Maybe. Okay. So one person that is credited with possibly finding the Philosopher's Stone and thus creating the Elixir of Life is Nicholas Flamel. From Harry Potter. He is mentioned in Harry Potter as one of the great sorcerers. Now he supposedly achieved the basic two biggest achievements of alchemy and shared it with his wife, Perenelle. Perenelle Flamel. Yeah. It's a terrible name. And by the way, they were French. Oh. Now, according to a text ascribed to Flamel, almost 200 years after his death, 
He had learned alchemical secrets from a Jewish converso on the road to Santiago de Compostela. So in this book, the exposition of the hieroglyphical figures, in the introduction, Flamel's search for the Philosopher's Stone was described in that he had found this 21-page mysterious book that he had purchased. And in around 1378, he traveled to Spain for assistance in the translation. And on his way back is when he runs into the mysterious Jew... Ah, the mysterious Jew who will give you this book for a pound of flesh. No, he had the book already. Oh. He helped him translate it. Oh, handy. And he was told that this was the original book of Abramelin the Mage. That sounds like Merlin to me. Don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) Fine. So, Nicholas Flamel is a real person. What? He is, he is, he is. He lived in Paris. Okay, well, at least that's right. From 1330s to 1418. He was not actually an alchemist. Oh. He was a scribe and a bookseller. Maybe that was just a cover. Maybe it was. But he was very wealthy. Well, if he was a bookseller, he could have come across a rare book. I mean, it is possible, but his, you know, they, a lot of people attribute his wealth to the Philosopher's Stone. Uh Uh-huh. But actually his wife was wealthy from two of her previous marriages. Oh, so he married a black widow. Basically. Okay. But in the 1600s, these books started coming out that were attributed to him. Oh, we're going to see this again, too. (laughs) Oh, yes. But by the mid-17th century, he was well in everyone's imagination, including Isaac Newton and Victor Hugo. I've heard of them. Yeah. Albert Pike, who mentioned him in his book, Morals and Dogma of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. Ah, Freemasonry. And of course, he is in Harry Potter. Yeah, that's the true. The all-important work. You say that like it's not. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, you have this other character and his wife, who supposedly did achieve the elixir of life by finding the Philosopher's Stone. Now, if you look at history, unlikely... <laughs> But you never know. He is not one that pops up in the history books later on. But St. Germain sticks around. So even during St. Germain's lifetime, he was quite the talking point among the European elite. Frederick the Great, for example, called him a man whose riddle has never been solved. And Baron von Gleichen writes of him in a biography he composes, Never has a man of his kind had such a talent for arousing curiosity and for managing the credulity of those who listened to him. He knew how to balance the marvelousness of his narratives according to the receptivity of his listener. If he was talking to someone who was very receptive, he would just be like, yeah, I knew Charles V. We hung out. But if someone was a little bit more suspicious, he would mention somewhere that he'd been and it would be like a little bit out of the ordinary. You know, it would just be a little smudge in reality. So you had to like cater to his audience. Yes. How to to work a room. Great con men. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he'd be, you know, quoting a speech of Francis I or Henry VIII and he would act as if he'd gotten lost in the story. And he'd say, and the king turned to me. I mean, I mean, the king turned to the duke and said. Nice. Yes. The Baron says that St. Germain later confided, These beasts of Parisians, he says to me, believe I am 500 years old, and I confirm to them this idea, since I see that it gives them so much pleasure. It is not that I am infinitely older than I appear. And at that time, the Baron became suspicious that maybe he was trying to kind of trick him a little bit. But he wanted him to feel that he was smarter than the people in Paris. 
But the stupidity of Paris does not limit itself to a few centuries. It went so far as to make him a contemporary of Jesus Christ. And that's what gave rise to this tale. Now, the Duke de Chaucel, who is the father of Madame de Pompadour, did not care for St. Germain, not one little bit. He's like, I'm saying through your bullshit. And so the Duke came home and asked his wife why she was not drinking. And she replied that she was following the regime recommended by St. Germain with the greatest success. And the Duke forbade her from following the follies of a man so equivocal and went on to claim that he knew the truth about St. Germain, that he is the son of a Portuguese Jew who imposes on the credulity of this town and the court. And of course, he was just repeating a rumor he'd heard. But since the Count could speak Portuguese, maybe there was some something to it. Now, Count Kreisgarth Krodelbeck, a Saxon, and the King of Poland's representative at The Hague, wrote of St. Germain, What is certain is that a member of the States General who is approaching 70 has told me that he saw this extraordinary man in the house of the father when he was only a child, and yet he has the agile, loose movements of a man of 30. His legs are ever ready to make a turn. He wears his own hair, black, and growing all over his head, and there's hardly a line on his face. He never eats meat, except for a little white of the chicken, and limits his nourishment to cereals, vegetables, and fish. He takes great precautions against the cold. And he went on to add that St. Germain claimed to have learned nature's most beautiful secrets, and was extremely rich, and had shown him stones of inestimable value. St. Germain told him of the French king's lack of firmness, saying those around him abused his good nature and flattered his weaknesses. <laughs> like me. Like me. I'm doing it. <laughs> See? Now... There's a little bit of a problem here. And the problem's name is Guavet. Apparently, while St. Germain was still very much alive, there was a man named Guavet going around pretending to be him. Nice. My court's so awesome. I got charlatans on charlatans. No, you're terrible. You know I am. So, Guavet, apparently, was responsible for some of the wild stories that circulated about St. Germain. He claimed that he had been employed as a spy against the British during the Seven Years' War, and courtiers now made use of his services in Paris to play the parts of all sorts of people. Sometimes he would disguise himself as Saint Germain to satisfy the curiosity of women and idlers. I'm sure he did. Glycon says that when he was impersonating Saint Germain, Gawa would begin with minor exaggerations, but if he saw that all was received with admiration, he would go back from century to century, until the time of Christ, of whom he would speak familiarly, as if though he had been his friend. And he would say, for instance, I knew him intimately, and he was the best man in the world, but rather romantic and reckless. I warned him several times that he would come to a bad end. This kind of nonsense, which was widely repeated and taken quite seriously in Paris, gave rise to Monsieur de Saint-Germain acquiring a reputation for possessing a medicine which rejuvenated and rendered immortal. The elixir of life. So, maybe it's this dude pretending to be St. Germain saying this stuff. Maybe it's St. Germain's all very confusing. Or maybe he just really blew it up. Right, right. St. Germain's like, yeah, I knew someone a hundred years ago. And he's like, yeah, me and Christ were bros. Road trip. <laughs> so, alas, if... St. Germain did possess the elixir of life. He did not share it with Louis the 15th because he died in 1774. But the Count died 1784, just 10 what? years later. I thought he was immortal. Wait for it. Okay, fine. Don't you fret. I was ne sad. Never you fret, little one. Finally, this extraordinary man died near Schleswig in the, at the house of Prince Charles of Hesse. Also Prince Carl. I'm going to call him Carl because I think it's funnier. I don't know. <laughs> 
whom he had entirely subjugated and engaged in speculations which were not successful. During the last years of his life, he was only served by women who treated him and pampered him like another Solomon, and after having lost his strength imperceptibly, he died in their arms. All the pains which the friends and servants, even the brothers of the prince, had taken in tearing from him the secret origin of Monsieur de Saint-Germain had been useless. But having inherited all of his papers and received the letters which had since arrived at the deceased, the prince ought to be better instructed on this chapter than we, who will probably never learn more, since a singular obscurity is worthy of the personage. So he died. I mean, did they find all of his stones and the philosopher's stone and all of his gold? You see, what had happened was, he'd kind of been kicked out of France. That's not a good sign. We'll talk about that more later. 1779, he went to Hamburg and settled in a castle of the Prince of Eckenford. And he was now cutting a bit of a sad figure, and he seemed very wary of He refused to see a doctor, and he died. His death was recorded by a local church. But good old Carl, Prince of Hesse, Hesse. says, He spoke to me about the great things he wanted to do for humanity, etc., I was not particularly desirous of doing so, but in the end, I had my scruples about rejecting knowledge, which was in every way important, from a false idea of wisdom or avarice, and I became his disciple. He was like, I was really just a greedy bastard, but I couldn't help but hear him out. He spoke much on the improvement of colors, which would cost almost nothing, or the improvement of metals, adding that it was absolutely necessary to adhere faithfully to this principle. There is almost nothing in nature which he did not know how to improve and use. He confided to me something of the knowledge of nature, but only the introductory part, making me search for myself by experiments for means of succeeding and rejoicing exceedings in my progress. That was the way with metals and precious stones, but as for colors, he actually gave me them, as well as some very important information. So Carl also said, he had always acted as if though he knew nothing of masonry or high knowledge, though during the last year of his life, he convinced me to the contrary. Despite never having owned to being a mason, he said something strange, that he was le plus ancien des mecons, the most ancient of masons. Oh, and now Prince Carl was a big fan of all of these secret societies. Absolutely. He was a member of many in seeking that ancient hidden knowledge. Right, so alas... When they came to his apartment after his death, there was very little there. A very comprehensive ledger was compiled, and his entire estate was recorded in copious detail. Really boring reading. And altogether, all told, it would have been valued at less than $1,000 in today's currency. So no gold, no fused diamonds. No stones, no books, no musical instruments. Unless he took it. Carl could have taken it. Oh, I meant... Count St. Germain. He could have also taken it. You can't take it with you, unless you're the Count! Benny Hill music. <laughs> but Carl of Hesse entered the apartment to remove all of their personal correspondence. Oh. And apparently, the Count was buried at the Church of St. Nicholas in Erkenford. And despite his close relationship with the prince, his estate was sold off to pay for his burial, which I thought was interesting. And it was a little bit lacking, like it really didn't cover all the expenses. And so Carl did cover those, but I thought that was a, an interesting thing that happened there. He says he's d- his disciple, and yet he's giving him kind of this bare-bones burial. No pun intended. And people really seem to have only learned of the funeral after it happened. It's almost like he was distancing himself from him. He went to burn the letters. He didn't want anyone to know about his death or burial. 
was keeping a secret. I don't know if he burned the letters or if he put them in a lockbox somewhere and said they're mine all mine. You'll never know their secrets. Somewhere. It's, it's hidden with the fountain of youth. Right. It is the fountain of youth. Get it together, man. Right. Good God. Now, there are legends that he left a notebook of secrets, which was passed to Cagliostro and later confiscated by the Inquisition. Cagliostro. Cagliostro. So we have talked about him. He was part of one of our episodes of Audio Dime Museum. Right. Josephi, our lovely magician that I chose to do way too much research on, had a skull that could talk, and he called him Cagliostro. And so, naturally, that is a path I went down in doing research for that episode. And Cagliostro was a alchemist and a disciple of Saint Germain and ended up being, you know, captured by the Inquisition and maybe he escaped and lived forever. That's kind of his deal. Another immortal. Maybe. A disciple of Saint Germain. Yes. So there is a book that is attributed to either Cagliostro or Saint Germain. Which if it was in his possession at the time that it was taken during the Inquisition. S- you can see where the confusion comes from. So, so this th- is in the um, library frequented by Tom Hanks. It is not. Robert Langdon? No. It's in the Getty Library. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sure he goes the there Vatican. too. Damn. It's not the Vatican. So this is called the Most Holy Trinosophia, or the Most Holy Threefold Wisdom. It dates to at least the late 18th century, and it's a 96-page book divided into 12 sections representing the 12 zodiac signs, and it's a triangle. Oh my god, cool. Like I said, it is in the Getty Museum. It's research holdings, and so there are PDFs online. It's a beautiful book. Right, the calligraphy alone is worth looking yes. at. Yes, and it was brought into the public consciousness by Manly P. Hall. His name was Manly? Yes. He was a Canadian-born mystic. Oh. And founded the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, which was quite popular in the 30s and 40s. Oh, shocking. Oh, and they had so much money, they bought all of these fantastic alchemical texts. Yeah, and they and the Getty bought them in, I think, the 90s. Cool um, acquisition. Yeah. And so they have the most, like, comprehensive thorough, yeah, collection of these alchemical and mystical, esoteric and yeah. mystical texts. From the centuries-old books. Okay, want to go. Get your bags. So, Manly, since he was Canadian-born, I guess he also spoke French. <laughs> but he translated it, or attempted to, and noted that it included various texts written in Chaldean Hebrew. Interesting. Ionic Greek, mm. Arabic, Syriac, cuneiform, Greek hieroglyphics, and ideographs. So the keynote throughout this material is that the approach of the age and the leg of the, the grand man and the waterman of the zodiac will meet in conjunction of the equinox and end the grand 400,000 year cycle, culmination of eons, and the apocalypse. He did die during Pisces. Fishes. And so Manley says that obviously the personage who gathered the materials in this manuscript was one whose spiritual understanding might be envied. He found these various texts in different parts of Europe, no doubt, and they had a true knowledge of these import and proved by the fact that he attempted to conceal some 40 fragmentary ancient texts by scattering them within the lines of his own writings. So, a beautiful mind kind of book. It's in 
all like it's in all these different types of writing. It's mixed. There is a it's kind of coded. My God, I want it. And of course, what well, there is a PDF. It's beautiful. And of course, Hall says it was definitely in the hands of Cagliostro and was seized by the Inquisition. Cool. But now it's part of the Getty, like I said. And what you do can they check think? It out. Do they think it's like? Does it date to that time? If they, but they think it? they think it's 18th century. Okay, interesting. So. We had our immortal die, and that's kind of a downer. But yeah, wait, the there's hell? but wait, there's more. <laughs> of course. But wait, there's more. So a year after his death, Saint Germain was seen at a convention of the Knights Templar, <gasps> or at a Masonic convention in Paris, depending Same. on who you ask. Yes. <laughs> and he was seen by Doctor E. E. Eckhart and Cagliostro, and they claimed that he had been elevated to the status of the Templar. Of course, he was. Right. So he is definitely mentioned in the books that Dan Brown based the Da Vinci Code on. Holy Blood, Holy Grail, yeah, like that. Yeah, all of this is awesome. Saint Germain, Flamel, Cagliostro. I want to read them, but I don't want to be that crazy. Like I don't want to spend a week of my life. Just read the Da Vinci Code. It's fun. You could read in like two minutes. I, I listened to the audio book while I cleaned the house one day. It's fantastic. I read it as many people on a plane. <laughs> Many years ago. Yeah, it was like when you were in med school. Because I was in high school. No, that I listened to it. So in 1785, he was seen by Anton Mesmer, the pioneer hypnotist. And some people claim that St. Germain actually taught him his secrets for personal magnetism. What can this guy not do? Nothing. He's the greatest, I told you. In official records, Freemasonry show that St. Germain was chosen as a representative for a convention in 1785. And the next year, he supposedly had a meeting with Catherine the Great in Russia in St. Petersburg. And then he also runs into Baron Linden, who, and this will, we'll see this again, so hold on to it, put it in your pocket and save it for later. And as he runs into Baron Linden, he's like in a, in a state, he's in a tizzy, and he says that he needs to run to the Himalayas real quick. Is he like going to Shambhala? I'm sure. And that he'll be back in 85 years, don't worry. And boop, I love you. <laughs> BRB. Kissy face. Kissy face emoji. And then there's this whole thing with Countess Dadamer. And she is Marie Antoinette's lady in waiting. So that we've moved on now. We're in Louis 16. We're about to do French Revolution stuff. He's getting in with all the ladies in waiting. <laughs> oh, there are more. I, I cut some. <laughs> but on October 5th of 1789... She gets a letter saying that the sun has set on the French monarchy and it's too late. His hands are tied by, quote, one stronger than myself. Now, he prophesied the death of Marie Antoinette and the ruin of the royal family and the rise of Napoleon and says that he had to go to Sweden to investigate this King Gustavus III matter and try to head off, quote, a great crime. But like he had other things to do. He could not be dealing with his whole, you know, French revolution. Well, his hands were tied by one greater than him. Jesus. Jesus. They were buddies. Right. Okay, fine. But this thing with her continues. He keeps appearing to Madame de Mer. And according to the Count, in 1793, the fate of the Queen would be death. And he tells this to the Countess, and she asks if she'll see the Count again. And he says, five times more, do not wish for a sixth. Now, the first of the six was in 1793. Wait, six, you said five. Well, I assume the sixth was at the time of her death. <gasps> I mean, if I was writing the movie, that's how it would go. But anyway, which maybe I should. At the assassination of the queen, she saw him in the crowd, the guillotining of the queen. So that's one. And then there are more. 
on November 9th of 1799. She sees him at the coup d'etat in which Napoleon Bonaparte overtook the French consulate. Two. And then on March 22nd of 1804, at the death of Louis-Antoine de Bourbon, the Duke of Aiglaine. And she saw him in the crowd again. Three. And then on in 1813, in January, he visits her again. Four. And then on February 13th of 1820, on the eve of the murder of Charles Ferdinand, Duke of Berry, she meets up with him. Five. I'm not going to ask for another. Well, she writes a note about this and puts it in her journal, and she dates it May 12th, 1821. And she is recorded all of these and explained the sightings and written down the dates and she's able to recall the dates because significant things happened on those days it's never like i was going to get tea and he was there no it's like oh yeah i remember that day i can actually cross-reference it with historical work he's like almost like a bad omen oh yeah definitely she puts this note in her journal may of 1821 and then she dies the next year in 1822 and it's discovered after her death so I assume her death was probably six. It's interesting because she wasn't like using it to get attention. You know, no. she wasn't wondering, I'd go like, look, I've written all this down. It wasn't until after she died. Right. I mean, that's what accounts now say. Who knows how that actually played out, but it does in- lend some credibility to her account. Now, in 1820, Albert Vandam, an Englishman, wrote in his memoirs, an Englishman in Paris, that he spoke to a certain person whom he knew toward the end of Louis Philippe's reign and whose way of life bore a curious resemblance to that of Count St. Germain. He called himself Major Fraser. Wait a second. Right? The guy that buys the Fountain of Youth is named Fraser, and this mm. guy's name is Fraser? That's weird. That hadn't happened yet. Happenstance. <laughs> but still. Come on, that's all we've got here. Work with me. <laughs> Wrote Vandom, and he lived alone and never alluded to his family. Moreover, he was lavish with his money, though the source of his fortune remained a mystery to everyone. He possessed a marvelous knowledge of all the countries in Europe at all periods. His memory was absolutely incredible, and curiously enough, he often gave his hearers to understand that he acquired his learning elsewhere than from books. Many as the time that he had told me with a strange smile that he had known Nero or that he'd spoken to Dante and so on. Like St. Germain Major Fraser had the appearance of a man between 40 and 50, of middle height, strongly built. The rumor was that he was the illegitimate son of a Spanish prince, and after having been, also like St. Germain, a cause of astonishment to Parisian society for a considerable time, he disappeared without leaving a trace. Was it the same Major Fraser who in 1820 published an account of his journey to the Himalayas, in which he said that he had reached Gangotri, the source of the most sacred branch of the tree of life, the Ganges River, and bathed in the source of the Juma River. James Bailey Fraser wrote Journal of a Tour, and that is the book in question. Now, in 1870, Napoleon III, so not Bonaparte, son. The Jersey Devil one? Yeah, that one. Yeah. And the, everything he says with a grain of salt. And the Dan- Daniel D- Douglas Hume one, that one too. Yeah. yeah. He became very interested in the count. And he actually put together a special commission to collect any information that they could about the Count. And it was all working out of this hotel, Hotel de Ville. And a year after he put together this commission, a mysterious fire broke out (gasps) and burned all of the records. Oh no. It's a conspiracy. Most foul. Maybe Prince Carl did have the elixir of life. He's just burning shit everywhere. (laughs) 
don't know why that calls to mind such a funny image. Now, this is a really interesting appearance of a count-like character, and this happens during World War I, when two Bavarian soldiers, sometimes three, depending on the account you read, capture a Jewish-looking man in Alsace. And during an all-night interrogation, the prisoner stubbornly refuses to give his name. Suddenly, in the early hours of the morning, the unidentified Frenchman got very irritable and started to rant about the futility of war. He told his captors, throw down your guns. The war will end in 1918 with the defeat of the German nation and her allies. One of the soldiers, Andreas Rill, laughed at the prisoner's words, even though the man was merely expressing the hopes of every Frenchman. But he was intrigued by the prisoner's other prophecies. Everyone will be a millionaire after the war. There will be so much money in circulation. People will throw it from windows and no one will bother to pick it up. You will need to carry it around in wheelbarrows to buy a loaf, the Frenchman predicted. So is this published before the end of World War I? It's been looked at and authenticated as written at the time that it happened. Really? So he's referring to like the Weimar Republic. Mm-hmm. Whenever there was you know, such great inflation, they were carrying money around in wheelbarrows and right. stacking it up. And you see those pictures in your history books. <gasps> Is it real? <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Another prophecy. Wait, there's a- more. Oh, no, really? Yes. After the confetti money will come the Antichrist. A tyrant from the lower... FDR? No. Uh. No. A tyrant from the lower classes who will wear an ancient symbol. He will lead Germany into another global war in 1939, but will be defeated six years on after doing inhuman, unspeakable things. And then he began to become incoherent and started to sing and then began to sob. Thinking he was mad, the soldiers let him go, and he disappeared back into obscurity. Of everything we've talked about, if this truly was written during World War One, this is crazy. Okay, so what happened is Andreas Rill, the man who's mentioned specifically in this account, is a documented prisoner of war. And it's said that when he is taken prisoner, he tells the story to his captors. And it's written down and verified kind of later on. His kids say this is a story he always told. This, of everything, is, is crazy. This is the crazy one. This is, this this is, like, is the wow. crazy one. Um, because it's not just like, wow, there's going to be another war in 10 years. Cause like you could just guess that there was a new <laughs> war every 20 years. Like just, it's not some vague thing. Yeah. It's like, there will be massive inflation. The massive inflation to me is even more impressive than the antichrist prediction. No, no. The most impressive is the ancient symbol. Right. Well, no, that could be cross. Yeah, I guess you're right. You're right. Like that's yeah, so open right. to interpretation. But that it truly was. Right. Right. Like this ancient, ancient Tibetan good luck charm. Yeah. No, he was said to have diamond rings on his figures and be all dressed in black. And he very much fits the description of the count. But we never get his name. We never get any reason to believe it's Saint Germain other than mysterious figure who knows the future and seems to be predicting war, which he's good at. So they release him. And I have to say to you, hot tip, if you're ever captured. In World War I? And by hostile forces. Okay. Just, you know, make a really scary, scarily accurate prophecy, cry and sing. Got it. In 1926, this is one of my favorites, C.W. Ledbetter claims to have met St. Germain in Rome. And he gives a physical description of him having brown eyes and olive-colored skin with a pointed beard. And according to Ledbetter... The splendor of his presence impels men to make obsentience, 
and he says that St. Germain showed him a robe that had previously been owned by a Roman emperor. He has the red robe? (laughs) Maybe. And told him that one of his residences was the castle in Transylvania. And according to Ledbetter, when performing magical rituals in the castle in Transylvania, St. Germain wears a suit of golden chainmail, which once belonged to a Roman emperor. Over is thrown a magnificent cloak in Tyrian purple with a clasp of a seven-pointed star and a diamond and an amethyst. And sometimes he wears a glorious robe of violet. This guy's got style and class. I know. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. (laughs) Now, I do have to say that I think that um, Ledbetter's account is mostly, you know, the fuel of bodice rippers. For sure. But we do have one more individual that we need to acknowledge on our magical mystery tour of Europe with the Count. And that is Richard Oh, we must mention him. Now, he claims to be the Count in the 1970s, and he appears on television doing magic tricks and pretends to change lead into gold. And he's sort of this um, shellacked-looking character that has the very Hall and Oates aesthetic happening. Like That's what he makes me think of. Like, so you're telling me he's just as good-looking as St. Germain. Yeah, he's very, he's very yacht rock. He's got a yacht sweet. rock vibe. I hope he's got the sweet porn stash. No, sorry. Liar. <laughs> he was French. He was not going to have a, a mustache. You can't say Holland Oates and not have the porn stash. Now, he seems to have learned about St. Germain and all of his exploits while, you know, in prison for being a con man. But he made the rounds on French television, claiming to be the Count, and became a favorite on the Riviera social circuit, and demonstrated magic and claimed to have all of this alchemical knowledge. But apparently, he died either as the result of a suicide pact or a murder-suicide with his lover at the time in Saint-Tropez. And he left a note, but there are tales that they never found his body. I suspect if I dug into it more... I would have found that they found his body, no, but I just never found it. didn't care. Cause I don't, never. this guy is vanished, vanished. Okay. Yeah. He's not a Saint Germain. smoke. <laughs> so if you are Saint Germain, hi, call the urban legend hotline. We would love to hear from you. I have so many questions. What was Nero like? <laughs> so as the count refused to die, much more gossip was ginned up by these ongoing appearances. Of course. I mean, it's such a fun story. Like, how can you not help but add to it? Oh, I want to add to it. I have nothing to add to it. I do. What are you going to add to it? We'll get there. Okay. But people did add to it. And so we get this comprehensive timeline of his early life emerging, these other incarnations of St. Germain. Now, there is a resource that is beautifully curated online and it's findingstgermain.com and it's a blog that has chronicled kind of every appearance that exists or every kind of legend that exists about St. Germain in a very comprehensive way. So is it that there's St. Germain or is it that there is some immortal character that claims to be hundreds of years old? Mostly St. Germain. The one from World War One has no direct bearing. It is the rings and the dressed in black thing that associates it. But there's some association with St. Germain in most of the lore. Does anyone say that he was Cagliostro? Or just that that Cagliostro was his disciple? Oh, there are 
intimations of both. Hmm. Mostly, though, it is that they were contemporaries. Okay. But there are some early points on our timeline that we should acknowledge. Okay. So from around about 600 to 530 oh, we're going way back. BCE. Way back. Way back. Count says that he received the staff of Moses from one of Moses's great-grandsons during the time of Cyrus in Babylon. That's a nice staff you got there. Oh, yeah, I got it from um, Moses. <laughs> Have you heard sorry, of him? what was that? <laughs> I mean, I made it to my laboratory. And then in 364 to 375 BC, he lived as a missionary under the rule of Emperor Valentinian. And during this time, he traveled to Cornwall in England. And then from 1307 to 1327, he claims to have had rooms at the Tower of London under King Edward II's rule. And then 1510 to 1540, he says that he studied speculative chemistry with Francis I of France. And then we get to like the more canonical like lifetime sightings. Like when he really was alive. Possibly. Most likely. Like feasibly, I guess. So 1710 is one of those real is a pretty firm point on the timeline, but it's a secondhand account. So Baron de Glyken, who wrote our lovely biography that we read so much from earlier, said that Rameau, an old relative of a French ambassador at Venice, testified to having known St. Germain in 1710 when he had the appearance of a man about 50 years of age. Rameau was a French Baroque composer and music theorist and a harpsichord specialist. Oh, and then it's known that St. Germain was quite a musician. Right, and the harpsichord specifically is what he played for Frederick the Great while he was in his company. Right, and several of his compositions, or at least two that I know of, are housed in the British Museum. And he's thought to have composed some pieces of work for an opera. Which he attended. He did. But that was during his real life, and that's fine. Oh, okay. That's not suspicious. So there are kind of fuzzy reports from 1715 to 1723, and then we get to a little bit more firm footing in like 1735. We start having some like documented markers. We have a a letter he mailed, so we know that he was old enough to at least write during that time. So he's probably like really alive now, and that's not weird. Um, But in 1743, he lodged on Martin Street in London, which is important, and I want you to remember it. We'll come back to it later. There's going to be a lot of that in this episode. We'll summarize. (laughs) We will. And then in 1745 through 1747, he was like in London and he's hanging out with a Jewish physician at St. Mary's Axe, which is a badass name. And I'm naming my band that. Mm. Band name called it. And this is also the time that he's doing his opera. But Horace Walpole arrests him. But he writes a letter to Horace Mann explaining that he has arrested St. Germain. And his letter reads thusly. The other day, they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count St. Germain. He has been here two years and will not tell who he is or whence, but professes two wonderful things. The first, that he does not go by his right name, and the second, that he has never had any dealings with any woman, nay, nor with any substitute. 
He sings, plays on the violin wonderfully and composes, is mad and not very sensible. He is called an Italian, a Spaniard, a Pole, a somebody that married a great fortune in Mexico and ran away with the jewels of Constantinople, a priest, a fiddler, a vast nobleman. The Prince of Wales has unsatiated curiosity about him, but in vain. However, nothing has been made out against him. He is released, and what convinces me that he is not a gentleman stays here in talks of his being taken up for a spy. A report dated December 21st of 1745 by the French Change d'Affaires in London states that St. Germain has met every highly placed person, including the Prince of Wales. He speaks several languages, French, English, German, Italian, etc., is a good musician and plays several instruments, said to be Sicilian and of great wealth. What has drawn suspicion on him is that he cuts a very fine figure here, receiving great sums and settling all bills with such promptitude that he has never been necessary to remind him. Nobody could, could imagine how a man was simply a gentleman could dispose of such vast resources, unless as a spy. He has been left in his own apartment under the guard of the state messenger. No papers have been found on his person, which furnish the least evidence against him. He has been interrogated by the Secretary of State, to whom he does not furnish an explanation of himself quite so satisfactorily as a gentleman wishes, persisting in his refusal to state his name, title, or occupation unless to the King of France himself. He says his behavior has been no way contrary to the laws of this country, and it is against common right to deprive an honest foreigner of his liberty without formulating an accusation. So did he get to talk to the king? Yeah. <laughs> of course. We well, that. he started working for him in 1749. As what? A diplomat. Oh, okay. So he starts working for Louis the Fifteenth in 1749, and he kind of goes to the French court, and all that kind of hubbub starts. Right. I mean, of course, maybe he's that old. He must be a pretty wise and a good mm. diplomat. And he's known to be in The Hague for about a year. But in 1760, a warrant from France is issued for the extradition of Count St. Germain from Holland. And Count de Bintic gives St. Germain a warning and urges him to travel to England. Now, the day before he left, he'd spent four hours in negotiations trying to end the, at the time, three years war. Wait, that just doesn't have the same ring to it. Right, that's what they said and why they kicked him out. They were like, sorry, sorry, we were really hoping for seven because it just sounds good. It's a lucky number. So, he, yeah, he was trying to end the seven years war before they shipped him off to England. And in that same year, ahead of his arrival in England, like when all this kind of gossip is going on and people are like, who is this guy? Why is he coming here? Reed's Weekly Journal, or the British Gazetteer, publishes an account that the Count is coming from Holland, and they claim that he was born in Italy in 1712, and that's one of the only, like, birth dates we get for him. Also, eventually I did find that his first name was supposedly Denis, which was hard to find, and just in case you were curious. Now, in 1769, he is in Venice making faux silk from flax, which we're back to that, like, he's really good with fabrics and stuff, like fabrics and metals and dyes and all of this kind of chemistry stuff. Like, he probably actually did do that. Like, he probably was really good at this kind of early chemistry. Yeah, no, I have no problem believing that. That doesn't even seem that fantastical to me. If you can learn that many languages, you can do this stuff, I'm sure. (laughs) And then, apparently, in 1770, he was at Leghorn when the Russian fleet was there. And he wore a Russian uniform and was called Graf Saltikov by the Orlovs, who were instrumental in getting Catherine the Great into power. Now, this knack for prophecy is something that appears before his death and 
after his death. We keep seeing mm. this. We see the prophecy about the French Revolution. We see the prophecy about World War One, And we have a few others. Now, between 1775 and 1780, the date can't be pinned down exactly. The Count met up with Franz and Rudolf Goffer, who were two brothers in Vienna. And he says, You have a letter of introduction from Herr von Steinkolt, but it is not needed. This gentleman is Baron Minden. I knew that you would both be here at this moment. And you have another letter from me from Bruhl. But the painter is not to be saved. His lung is gone and he will die. On July 8th, 1805, a man who is still a child called Bonaparte will be indirectly to blame. Now, gentlemen, I know of your doings. Can I be of any service to you? So he is saying, he is prophesizing that Bonaparte is going to come up and take over France. Well, he's, at this one, he's saying that there is a painter that is going to die and that Bonaparte will be indirectly to blame. Hmm. And then... In 1788, a letter arrives at the French court, and it's anonymous, but everyone assumes that it's from St. Germain. Oh, of course. Who else would it be from? You know that dude that was here a few years ago, like, he was really into prophesying and stuff? What was his name? <laughs> yeah, he definitely wrote it, for sure. I want some cake. It says, The time is fast approaching when imprudent France, surrounded by misfortune, she might have spared herself. Will call to mind such hell as Dante painted. Because he was buds with Dante. Yeah. This day, O oh queen, is near. No more can doubt remain. A hydra, vile and cowardly, with its enormous horns, will carry off the altar throne of the Themis. In place of common sense, madness, incredible, will reign. And all be lawful to the wicked. Yea, Falling shall we see the scepter, censer, scares, toward tower and escrutians, even the white flag. Henceforth will all be fraud, murders and violence, which shall find in instead of sweet repose. Great streams of blood are flowing in each town, sobs only do I hear in exile see. On all sides civil discord loudly roars, and uttering cries on all sides virtue flees. As from the assembly votes death arise, great God, who can reply to murderous judges? And on what brows, august, I see swords descend? What monsters treated peers of heroes, oppressors, oppressed, victors, vanquished? The storm reaches you all in turn. This is a common wreck. In what crimes, what evils, what appalling guilt menace the subjects and the potentates? And more than one usurper triumphs in command. More than one heart is misled and humbled and repents, at last closing the abyss and born from a black tomb. There arises a young lily, more happy and more fair. Interesting. Interesting. So he is again prophesizing the fall of the French crown mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the rise of a, a new lily. A new lily. Mm, new ruling power. Right, the lily, symbol of France, fleur de lis, mm -hmm. all of this. Yes, Charlemagne, yes. et cetera. Et cetera. And then also the great streams of flowing blood will come up again. And red. The blood of angry men. I just want to go watch Les now. And it's also interesting. He says the swords descend on brows, which is like beheadings, which mm -hmm. is very specific. Mm -hmm. And that as from the assembly votes of death arise. 
It's like the general populace, yes. this underbody that's coming up against. It's very specific. Like it's it's vague. It's not as impressive as the World War One one. Like that one to me is more direct. But this is it's got a lot. It's got a lot. But you know, this was after the American Revolution. Right. It's bubbling. It's bubbling. It's coming up. The unrest is there, without a doubt. So it's interesting that not only is he immortal as he claims, but after this, he is often credited with also being kind of a prophet. Right. At least knowing when bad shit's about to go down. He's also a bad omen. He shows up. Shit goes down. True. True. Kingdoms da. fall. Which, again, great band name. Called it. Kingdoms fall. St. Mary's Axe. We're going on the road. But I'm curious to know who the historical figure is. Like, the actual guy that showed up in the French court claiming all of these miraculous crazy things like where the hell did he come from transylvania he's a vampire okay there is a theory (laughs) that he's vlad the (gasps) third that's an internet rabbit hole that we're not going to go down but i will just say that there was a vampire that surfaced in new orleans in the 1920s who went by the name jacques saint germain oh it was definitely him definitely him and woman tried to escape him and she jumped out of a window and died, and he fled, and they went in his room and discovered tiny bottles filled with blood. Do you look like Brad Pitt? Yes. Or Tom Cruise? Lestat, for Which sure. Which one? Lestat, for sure. <laughs> Brad Pitt would have never gotten that close to call. But apparently, there is much talk, much talk, all the time, about him being this Transylvanian prince, the son of Francis II Rokosi who was the Prince of Transylvania. Now, maybe, maybe he was illegitimate, and this would account for him being away from the family at the time that the regime was deposed. But the will of Francis Rokosi mentions his eldest son, Leopold George, who was believed to have died at the age of four. But the speculation is that he was not so much dead as, like, hidden away, you know? Definitely like, bastard very... son. But even if he was legitimate, if things were on the rocks and Habsburgs yeah coming to kill him yeah yeah we just we're just gonna put him over there and we're gonna say he died and he's fine him and Anastasia yes hanging out and man in the iron mask and whatever (laughs) lots of hidden royals prince and the pauper who knows but apparently when he arrived at Schleswig in 1779 he told Carl buddy Carl the prince and prince that he was 88 years old and that he was actually descended from the Rokosi line. Dracula. What? No. Rokosi. Right. Rokosi. Now, interestingly enough, Louis XIV, the Sun King, the original tabloid fixture and wearer of fancy pumps, was very good friends with Francis II Rokosi. So he may have harbored him. Possibly. Or at least he may have had an in with Louis XV if their fathers were friends. At least he could call on him if he was not actually harbored there, which there are plenty of places to hide people in those vast estates that were sucking all the wealth from the, from the underlings and fomenting dissent and revolution. revolution. Viva la France. I feel like storming a Bastille. Oh, yes, let's do it. <laughs> we would not be good at that. So perhaps he's a Transylvanian prince slash vampire slash immortal slash alchemist slash the greatest. But he's not the only one wandering around the continent. No, the idea of a immortal, wandering prophet slash holy man. Slash the greatest. Slash the greatest. Hashtag the greatest. 
roaming around the world is an ancient one. And we mentioned earlier that the idea of the fountain of youth is from a very Arabic tradition. Right. So now in Muslim tradition, there are four immortals. Okay. You have Idris, which is most likely Enoch. Idris Elba? No, although he does. He's got He's an immortal. Mm. He so is. <laughs> now, Enoch mentioned in Genesis, but we also talked about him in the Antichrist episode. Ah, oh, yes, I remember. He is featured strongly in some apocryphal books. You also have Elijah. I'm familiar. You have Flaming Je- Chariot. Yes. You Why have not? Jesus. Got it. Familiar. And you have another character called Al-Qadir. Not familiar. Yes. He's also known as the Green One. Oh, interesting. Now, Ankadia, according to legend, is the only person to have tasted of the fountain of immortal youth. Now, some traditions say he was wandering in a desert and came to a dried up spring. He dipped a dried fish in it, and the fish came alive again. Fantastic. Now you have a live fish that you can't eat. True. Kadir realized that he had found the fountain of life, and he dived in and became immortal, and his cloak turned green. Okay, well, that's better than a fish, I guess. He's often associated with this kind of primordial ocean and is said to live on an island in the middle of the sea. Interesting. All right, so he is featured in the Quran, mm-hmm. but not by name. Okay. But everyone knows it's Al-Qadir. Okay. Like, it is... Pretty well established. Very well established. Okay. So Moses, remember that guy? Familiar. Remember he gave, one of his sons gave... <laughs> Grand, great-grandsons. Yeah, gave like, gave like, a scepter to... St. Germain, or his staff. staff. It was a staff. Fine. So Moses and his servants go looking for the union of the two seas, the seas of this world and the sea of the next. As they are traveling, they have been told by God to bring dried fish to eat. Oh, we're back to the dried yes. fish. And yeah. they're wondering, looking for this kind of state of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And they suddenly realize that their fish have come back to life. Handy. They realize that they've reached their goal. And they start to trace their steps back. As they're tracing their steps back, they encounter a figure. As the Quran states, One of our servants unto whom God has given mercy from us and had taught him knowledge proceeding from us. This is Al-Qadir. Now Moses begs to be his follower. He wants to gain this wisdom. That is what he's searching for. Mm-hmm. And Al-Qadir is like, no. <laughs> Dude, you couldn't handle it. You can't handle the truth. Exactly. So he's, he's Jack like, Nicholson? No. He's more like, you couldn't handle this. <laughs> you couldn't handle this knowledge. And eventually Moses promises to only obey and not ask questions. He's like, Moses, I don't think you're ready for this, Shelley. He's like, fine, fine. So he begins to follow Al-Qadir, who on their journey performs these outrageous, terrible acts. He sinks a ship by drilling a hole into it. That wasn't very nice. He kills a child. Oh, that sounds pretty heinous. And when they come upon these terrible people, he helps them by rebuilding their wall. Okay, yeah, I'm going to have to ask questions. <laughs> Sorry, so, yeah, I'm going to have yeah. to ask questions. And so each time Moses questions him, like, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? And he doesn't answer. Him. He denies so, him three times? Yes. And we're back to and that so again. And so once he's denied three times, Kadir decides they're going to part ways. And he explains why he did these terrible acts. This is parting between me and you. I will inform you of the interpretation of that about which you could not have patience. As for the ship, it belonged to poor people working at sea. So I intended to cause defect in it. 
as there was after them a king who seized every good ship by force. As for the boy, his parents were believers, and we feared that he would overburden them by transgression and disbelief. So we intended that their lord should substitute for them one better than him in purity and nearer to mercy. And as for the wall, it belonged to two orphan boys in the city, and there was beneath it a treasure for them, and their father had been righteous. So your lord intended that they reach maturity and extract their treasure as a mercy from your lord. And I did it not of my own accord. This is the interpretation of that about which you could not have patience. Which is a virtue, Moses. So Al-Qadir is a very interesting character in the Muslim faith, but also in folklore of the region as well. Now, he does appear in other Islamic writings, in Hadith. You have other Muslim writers, such as Sufi Ibrahim ibn Adam, who said that in the wilderness I lived for four years. God gave me my eating without all toil of mine. Qadir, the green ancient, was my companion during that time. He taught me the great name of God. Now, it's debatable if he's a prophet or a wali, also known as a friend of God, but if you were to translate it into R. So an analog, almost. Yeah. Now, he had many, many shrines across the Middle East that were visited frequently. Now, interestingly, these shrines were not only visited by Muslims, but they were also visited by the Christian crusaders. That makes sense. They were in the area, had things to do. It makes sense. I mean, you see a shrine. You're like, cool. God, I know that guy. It's got to be one of his friends, right? Yeah, that's what the Crusaders did. But these shrines in the Middle East are identified with St. George in the Christian tradition and with al in the Muslim tradition. It's really interesting because I found this piece. This was by written by Elizabeth Ann Finn in 1866. And it's from her book, Home in the Holy Land. And she says, St. George killed the dragon in this country. The place is shown to be close to Beirut. Many churches and convents are named after him. A church in Lida is dedicated to St. George, and so is the convent near Bethlehem, and another small one just opposite the Jaffa Gate, and others besides. The Arabs believe that St. George can restore mad people to their senses, and they say a person has been sent to St. George's And that is the equivalent of saying that he's been sent to the madhouse. It is singular, and the Muslim Arabs adopted the veneration of St. George and send their mad people to be cured by him, as well as Christians. But they commonly call him El-Qadir, the Green, according to their favorite manage of using epithets instead of names. Why should he be called Green, however, I cannot tell, unless it is from the color of his horse. Gray horses are called Green in Arabic. She knew everything. (laughs) She definitely didn't, but you see that there is this, you know, questioning if it's the same character, if it's the same person, because the stories of St. George, you know, say that he was born in that area. In Lida. Yeah. That some say his mother was a Canaanite. Mm-hmm. He was executed in Nicodema. He was. And the story of St. George and the dragon. Is definitely Arabic. Definitely of Middle Eastern origin. And it was added to his hagiography, you know, at the time of the Crusades. When they're like, that guy's got a dragon. He's awesome. Yeah, we the, shall have him. And so Al-Qadir did not have a dragon, but he was involved in stories of, of Sari Satik, who is this great warrior saint who defeats a dragon in an Ottoman epic. Cool. But you can see the wires getting crossed. And of course, this woman, who I'm assuming is Christian, 
because of the way she writes. It's like, you know, it's so funny. They've co-opted our guy, St. George, and made up this character called Alcadir the Green. What a weird thing to do. Why'd they call him green? But I'm pretty sure Alcadir predates St. George by a bit. Yes, several centuries since he is in the Quran. <laughs> now, sometimes his works are merged with Elijah and some of the stories that are attributed to Al-Qadir in Muslim tradition and Jewish tradition are attributed to Elijah. Elijah is the one that was ascended in the flaming chariot. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the dude. Okay. Sometimes, like, don't you feel like when you're looking at Old Testament stuff and like the Islamic tradition, it's almost like Marvel and DC? Please explain. Well, it's like Green Arrow versus Hawkeye. They're kind of the same, but different. And then if you go back a little bit further, Green Arrow was originally supposed to be like a Batman character, which is weird to think of now, but they have ties and you can see similarities. I mean, he has the Arrow Cave. Come on. And it's like these competing mythologies that sort of evolve and are like, oh, we like that. We'll have that, too. And like, just bring it over and throw it in the mix. Well, they interacted so much at the time of the formation of all the text. The ancillary text, right? Well, and... And the primary. And the primary text. I mean, the Bible, the Quran, Torah, all in the same area. Mm Mm-hmm. I was thinking about like more the the legends, the myths that grew well, up that around too. it. Yeah, definitely. Like, I see it so much there. And so it's hard to say if there is this like Judeo-Christian counterpart. Mm-hmm. Because you can look at the characters in the Quran, look at the Bible, Torah, and see, oh, well, this one's this one, this one's this one, if their names are different. It's pretty easy to do. Right. But there's not an obvious one for Al-Qadir, mm-hmm. which is odd. Now, some people think that he might be this character, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and he is in the canonical Bible. He appears briefly as a king and priest who meets Abraham and blesses him with bread and wine. Cool. In Genesis. Love bread, love wine, love blessings. Hashtag the greatest. But you were talking about how those traditions and the folklore and the things that were important centuries or millennia ago are very different than what we talk about now. Right. And you can see that in the epistle to the Hebrews, where they note that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Wait, that makes, that's, that blows my mind. Okay, so he, but, but begats, like half, half the Old Testament is begats, and he doesn't, he's not begatted? He's not begatted. Holy cow. Okay, so he's a very unusual character. Very, this uh, is remarkable. Yes. I feel like someone should have, you know, highlighted this and mentioned it in Sunday school. You're right. <laughs> and he, he is in European art. He features prominently from centuries and centuries ago in the Middle Ages. So, Salam, is, is that like Salam, like peace, like Shalom? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a lot of people think that this might be the same character and that, that Melchizedek was a more important figure two millennia ago. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he would have gotten a lot of traction, a lot of talk about this guy. Yeah, and, and Hebrews goes on to say that basically Jesus is taking over from him, becoming the high priest of everything. Yeah, it seems like something that really should be talked about more. Very key here. Now, some other interesting 
works from millennia ago do show that he was probably a prominent figure in the Cave of Treasures. <gasps> like in Pirates of the Caribbean? No. But Keith Richards? Definitely not. You don't think he's eternal? No, it's like, the, well, yeah, that's probably true. <gasps> we solved it. <laughs> so the Cave of Treasures is the Syriac text from around 4th century CE. So very early fanfic. Very early. And it is this genealogy that goes from Adam all the way to Jesus and tells the story of all the people. And so it has this really interesting view, like look into the Adam mythology at the time. Oh yeah, because you know that was not left alone. Like that's not just Genesis. That is going to be talked about. But it also features King Melchizedek. So he joins Noah's son, Shem, to move Adam's body from the Cave of Treasures, which is where they were sent to after they were sent from the Garden of Eden. After the expulsion. It was full of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, that's going to come up again. So Shem and Melchizedek deposited the body of Adam there. And as soon as they had laid it therein, the four quarters of the earth drew quickly together and enclosed the body of our father Adam. And the door of the created world was shut fast, and that place was called Skull, because the head of all the children of men were deposited there. Wait, is this like in He-Man? Try again. Is this like hell? It's like Golgotha. Golgotha. The place of skulls, where... Tied to the crucifixion. It's where he's crucified, the place of skulls. And so then Shem appoints Melchizedek to carry out his priestly duties on this site forever. So we have an immortal figure? In this mythos. I like this mythos. I have to say, it's got a lot of pizzazz. Now you can also tie the idea of Al-Qadir to a Sumerian character in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So this is kind of the Sumerian Noah. And he creates a great ship, mm-hmm. survivor of the flood, on whom God has conferred immortality. That'll do it. So not only are you good enough to survive this flood, you're good enough to live forever. And now the Church of Latter-day Saints have also taken him up. Okay, good. And Joseph Smith appointed his male followers to priesthoods, named for the biblical figures Melchizedek and Aaron, that were overseen by the office of high priest. So basically, it's kind of like anyone who finds him and like perceives any meaning to him is fascinated enough to kind of pick him up and put him into service again. Incorporate him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so remember how we talked about... The Alexander the Great romances and epics. I do. And that is kind of the source in Europe of the Fountain of Youth. Which interestingly, like St. George, Alexander the Great supposedly died at Nicodema. True. So Orientalist Arendt Jan Winsnick wrote about this at the turn of last century. Saying that the story of Kadir and Alexander the Great is all connected and may also be connected to the Gilgamesh epic. And there are several versions of the Alexander romance. And I remember he had met this man that helped bring him to the fountain of youth. And in some versions, this man is Al-Qadir. And in one version, it's Al-Qadir and Alexander. And Alexander in the Muslim tradition is identified as Dul Karnayin. And they cross the land of darkness to find the waters of life. Now, Dul Karnayin gets lost looking for the spring. But Al-Qadir finds it and gains eternal life. It sounds like the Moses story. It does. Because they're 
it's where the light and dark converge and they have to find the point and there's a spring and they're off looking and there's two of them. Right. And so Iskandar Dal Cain translates to the two horned one. Wait. Okay. Hold on. I've seen the Vatican. Not personally. Want to. Want to. But I've seen my grandmother's gorgeous catalog she purchased from the Vatican that I used to like spend hours looking at. And I remember a certain individual had a glorious beard that would make all the Brooklyn hipsters so jealous and two horns. And I know who that was. Who was that? That's Moses. Correct. Thank you, Miss Translation. So Miss Translation had that Moses was horned. And so it's very possible that the Alexander the Great epics in Moorish Spain were actually retellings of this Quranic story of uh, Al-Qadir and Moses. Damn, son. Mind blown. So if you were to ask many Islamic scholars on if Al-Qadir is still alive, I found this. Al-Qadir is still alive because he was the one who buried Adam after the deluge, and thus he was affected by the invocation of Adam, that he who buries him will live long. And some people say he is still alive because he drank of the spring of life. And so this character of Al-Qadir, much like St. Germain, is also tied to some other stories around. He is very important in Sufi literature and folklore as being a representation of them as he is wandering around the earth. He shows up at time of need Mm -hmm. and represents their just kind of nomadic way. And some folklorists even tie him to a idea in folklore or even a tale type um, of the wandering Jew. Right. But the wandering Jew is not usually accompanied by reverence or not in the majority of the written literature. Wandering Jew is sort of a misunderstanding of the Jewish diaspora. It comes from this idea that the Jews were forced to wander as a result of divine punishment or a curse for the, you know, murder of Christ. So we're already starting in a pretty anti-Semitic place, and it's probably going to get a little darker before the dawn. He's generally... Not the greatest omen in the world. So the apocryphal version of the diaspora dates this, you know, dispersion of Jews upon the earth to around 70 CE. St. Augustine contributes to some of the anti-Semitic tones in this narrative. Fantastic. He says, the Jews who have refused to believe in him and killed him were miserably despoiled by the Romans and were utterly rooted out of their own kingdom and were scattered across the whole world. Thanks, St. Augustine. But later, the Nazis really ran with this line. Of course. They said the Jews as a nation refused to accept Christ, and since his time they have been wandering the earth without a temple or sacrifice, without a Messiah. And this was so prevalent around the time that World War II was ramping up that there was an international emergency council of Christians and Jews at Silesberg, Sweden in 1947, which urged that churches avoid promoting superstitious notion that the Jewish people is reprobate, accursed, and reserved for a destiny of suffering. Please don't encourage that. Hey, uh, guys, could we, uh, could we not? And I love that the Jewish people are there. They're like, could you not? Nothing good will come of this. So the origins of this tale type 
date back to around the 13th century. And they did continue on through the 1940s. In France especially, the idea that the Jewish people were nomadic was deeply rooted in the culture and viewed as fact. Scholarly remarks cited that their migratory tendencies were equated with their willingness to move on and their cultural absence of guilt. And the Vichy government very much reinforced these ideas. Shocking. Now, earlier, Thomas Brown, Sir Thomas Brown, had written, The Wandering Jew story is related thusly by him. He claims that the story was set down by one Matthew Paris, based upon a report from an Armenian bishop 400 years ago. This Jew came into his kingdom, and he entertained him often. And the wanderer was first called Cardophilus, and he was the keeper of the judgment hall, and was charged with jailing Jesus. Of course he was. And after the crucifixion, he was baptized by Ananias and took the name Joseph when he was around 30 years old and said he remembered the saints writing the Apostles' Creed. So he's an ancient. Right. An immortal. And then Ellis later writes in Brand's Popular Antiquities that this character was a restless vagabond on the face of the earth and at the end of every hundred years... He was seized with a strange malady that terminates in a trance of several days' duration, on emerging from which he would revert to the same physical condition that he was in when Jesus suffered, at which period he was 30 years of age. And they say he was very tall, with white hair, reaching below the middle of his back, and a beard below the girdle. An al is usually depicted as a young man with a long beard. Interesting. They also say that he did not wear shoes, even when the weather was cold. And in this town, he says that his name is Ahasuerus. Now, he was seen in Germany, according to this account, in 1542 on Easter Sunday. And he told the story of his role in the crucifixion. And he said that Jesus stumbled while he was carrying the cross. And he said, get on, blasphemer, to thy doom. And Christ said, I will stop and rest, but thou shalt march onward until I return. So he cursed him mm-hmm. to wander the earth until Christ returned. And then in the 1560s, he reappeared to the magistrates of Strasbourg and told them that he had been there two centuries earlier, which was verified by city officials by examining the police register. And he said that he had visited the remote East Indies in the intervening years. And in 1604, he visited France. True history of his life, as taken from his own lips, was printed in Bordeaux in 1608. And vague accounts have him appearing in Salamanca, Venice, and Naples, where he was a very successful gambler. And in 1771, he visited Brussels, where he set for a portrait to be included as an illustration within an interview that he had given centuries earlier. Of course. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to sit for the picture. I'm back. I'll do it now. I'll just come back in a few hundred years and we'll take a photograph. Cool. But with this, you can see that he's kind of tied to gambling, kind of tied to vice. He's got a very meager appearance. As goes along with that folkloric anti-Semitic tradition. Yes, yes, it does. Now, Krop, another writer, the author of Science of Folklore. That's a very early important folklore text. Yes. Claimed that he had connections to Arabic figures like Al-Qadir. But Al-Qadir bestowed rewards or delivered punishments, and there was not a feature similarly associated with Wandering Jew. Right, he really he usually wasn't a positive character. No. And he appeared in literature throughout the kind of romantic period. Shelley, South, 
Southie, Wordsworth, Byron, and Crabbe used the figure. Various ballads were also sold by peddlers in France during the 17th century. And here is one repented from Percy's Reliquies. When as in fair Jerusalem our Savior Christ did live, and for the sins of all the world his own dear life did give, the wicked Jews with scoffs of scorns did daily him molest, that never till he left his life our Savior could not rest. Fun song. Mm, good times. But during the 16th century, reports of visits were made in many of the leading European cities, and variants of the tale were collected in Britain. One of these was of the Glamorgan farmer, who said beginning of, at the beginning of the 16th century, a handsome stranger came to call on him and his family at his grandfather's house, and he rented a room there. And while lodging at their home, he began to court his Aunt Winifred. But he left, saying, It is my fate to win love, and it is my doom to never marry. And Winifred pined away and died. Oh, that's so sad. But he was seen 20 years later at her grave. And he claimed to be the wandering Jew. <gasps> now, in New York in 1948, there were claims about a man being seen in the public lavatory at the New York Library. Oh, nothing good comes from that. <laughs> and George Anderson, who studied the legend extensively, said that he met a man who believed that he was the wandering Jew. But he speculates that he has some sort of a mental condition. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, I wonder how many crazy people throughout history have believed that they were the wandering Jew, you know, because of schizophrenia or some other mental disorder. Just be like, yeah, it's me. And, you know, perpetuated this legend, like caused it to go home for centuries. There are more than written accounts. There was a series of engravings by Gustave Doré, which appeared in the 19th century. And Jacques Halevé composed the opera Le Jeu Errant. In 1852. Oh, I'm sure that was interesting. Mm -hmm. There are also dolls and puppets, coins, games, cards, dice, etc., which deal with the theme. But as previously stated, the Nazis were absolutely enthralled with this wandering Jew idea. Yeah, they're like, there's centuries of this evidence. They wrote in the official party paper, all the suggestions for lasting status, lasting regulation of Jews in Germany fail to solve the Jewish question inasmuch as they fail to rid Germany of Jews. And this is the whole point. We must build up our state without Jews. They can never be anything but stateless aliens. They can never have any legal or constitutional status. Only by this means can Ahasuerus be forced once again to take up his wanderer's staff. Oh, it's using that old name and terminology. Mm-hmm. But also taking the, the folklore, the Volk culture... And weaponizing it. Yeah, as they love to do. But notice that he has a staff. He does. I wonder where he got that from. Moses' grandson. Just saying. Anyway, moving on. So in the most extreme form, the concept of the permanently exiled homeless Jew plays on the traditional apprehension of the stranger in our midst. Ah, the stranger. And you have to remember that a lot of these ideas were circulated at a time when cross-cultural exchange was more difficult, just made that way by pure geography and a lack of knowledge of language and fewer written texts being circulated among the general populace. And so anyone who had a different culture was automatically marked as an outsider and thereby using our animal brains, a threat, a threaty threat, threat. And so by making this a permanent outsider, giving him no home or place and having him 
perpetually coming into communities. Well, but also having it being like, Jesus said this. Right. Like, oh no, <laughs> they He's can't cursed. Spares. He's cursed by Christ himself, you see. You don't want to cross that line. Really? Cross the line. And there's some variants, of course. In Spain and Portugal, he's a giant who strides across the world in seven-league boots. And he outlives Methuselah and sometimes causes blights. And in Switzerland, his shadow is half an hour long. In France, a mighty boulder was a grain of sand that fell from his shoe. And people would cross themselves saying, C'est le juif arant qui passe. And they say, it is the wandering Jew who passes. Now, the legend is that he went back and forth from France to Italy, and he crossed ripening grain fields. And on his return, God had replaced them with pine forest. And on his next trip, the region was locked in a perpetual ice and snow. Winter is coming. Right. There are also legends that he spreads disease, bringing epidemics and famine and desolation. These ideological legends are closely tied to the remote regions of France, Germany, and Switzerland, and Tyrol. And you'll see that about any kind of wandering people, the gypsies, mm-hmm. uh, Native Americans, mm-hmm. you know, they all, they were spreading disease. Right. If they came into your place, it would just cause... Miasma. Pestilence. <laughs> now, in Italy, he's believed to be a sea monster who's chained to the ocean floor... Well, or, didn't they just go crazy with it? I know. That's typical Italians for you. Or he might be trapped in the earth itself, like in it, and he's digging a hole to hell. Fun, right? Fun for all. And in Lithuania, he's ageless and timeless, and he's the grandson of Jacob. Now, there's an interesting tie there because Jacob's face is believed to be the face of the man in the moon. And as I kind of mentioned in the Boogeyman episode, sometimes the man in the moon is not a nice character. No. And he is in Lithuania, associated with a wandering Jew, who is condemned to remain on the moon, collecting sticks for the fire that will one day burn the earth on the Day of Judgment. Man, they just went everywhere with this story. Yep, yep, yep. Now, there are geographic features which are incorporated into the legend, depending on the location. And sometimes this can involve locals, you know, kind of offering evidence of his age using different features, such as in St. Briac, France, where a forest is dated to have begun growing at the time of his last visit a thousand years ago. So older than anything written. Older than the landscape itself. And his supernatural qualities are often linked to the geography or the landscape of a region. For example, in Denmark and Sweden, moss grows on his mantle. And a rock in the Black Mountains is called Judenstein because he walks around it on his journeys. And his tears, which are sometimes said to be tears of blood, form Black Lake near Zermatt in Switzerland. Oh, God. Now, of course, he has very strong links to Cain. Ah, the sin of Cain. The sin of Cain. Now, in Genesis 4, 10 through 15, God says to Cain, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth from the ground. And now thou art cursed on the earth, which hath opened its mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, that hast driven me this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond upon the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore whosoever slayeth Cain Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord made a mark upon Cain, lest 
any finding him should kill him. The mark of Cain. Right. But it's also a weirdly protective thing and it all a kind of a curse. It's like, okay, if no man could kill him, could anything kill him? Right. And you have to wonder, is that another eternal character? Like, what is this? Is this the vagabond, the fugitive wandering upon the earth? And he's literally, you know, not allowed roots. He's like, the earth will not grow anything for you anymore. Like, he is rootless. Yes, he must continue to just wander. And you see the themes that resurface in our legend of Ahasuerus. The wandering, the curse, the unjustified bloodshed, the eternal nature of the curse. And this mark. We see him literally set Cain apart from the rest of society. Civilization, that civilized body. Now... Interestingly enough, throughout history, Jews have been physically marked. Really? This like was for how long? not a Holocaust invention. This was not a Nazi Germany thing. It was decreed at the Lateran Council in 1215. Wow. That there should be a physical emblem placed upon Jews to prevent intermarriage and really, you know, normalization in any way, humane treatment, etc. And this was done in a variety of ways, and it all just depended on the temperament and aesthetic likes and dislikes of a ruler in a given locale. For example, Edward I had replaced the traditional white markings, white badges, worn by Jews with yellow. So we start to see that there. And then later in the Middle Ages, in Austria, Hungary, and Germany, we get the Judenhut. The Judenhut. The red hat with little horns. It had a brim that was shaped like a pair of horns. Again with the horns. Again with the horns. Just saying. <laughs> now, mystery plays, which were very popular at the time, they were put on kind of in the village squares, and they would depict the kind of ups and downs and mysteries of heaven and hell. And they were usually pretty lewd, raucous affairs, despite their piety. <laughs> Right, but they also include Jewish characters, mocking Jesus. Herod was always the villain Mm -hmm. of these plays. And you can see this kind of murder of the innocents in a lot of Middle Age artwork. Now, stage directions made sure to point out that any Jewish characters must be Jewish glekledak, or Jewish dressed, or avakrul un bonnet cornu, or with a horn cap and hat. Now, Jews, like witches, were very rigidly codified in in appearance. Now, they were usually ugly, stinky, animal-like, often blind or deformed, or broken in some other way. There's a motif in a folklore index that says, why Jews smelled bad and rubbed Christ's body with garlic. What? Like, it is... Firmly rooted enough in enough traditions that it has got its own folklore motif. Why Jews smell bad. People are terrible. True. But, you know, like we've mentioned numerous times in the episode, Jews were outsiders, but they were also had that outsider kind of magic that you see sometimes. You see a female mm-hmm. meeting the Jew on the road, the mysterious right. man. And you have a lot of these like texts, like with St. Germain or Cagliostro, that have portions written in Hebrew. Right. And this was very widespread, this idea that Jews were just kind of like naturally magical. Like they just had magic stuff in them and they could just do magic things. And interestingly enough, another people that received similar treatment were the Finnemark or the Lops, which we discussed in our mermaid episodes. Mm. 
And then, like, I just keep thinking of, like, the gypsies, the Romanians. Mm-hmm. A very, very similar kind of motif around them. Now, there was a time when a lot of Christian leaders were seeking out Jewish charms in order to get the Jew magic that they so desired, but didn't want to actually have themselves. I don't know. It's weird. It's ironic. It's contradictory. But for example... Is that that shocking at all? No, no. Like in the 14th century, there was a Bishop of Salzburg who requested that a rabbi construct a mezuzah for his gates. And a mezuzah is a parchment inscribed with religious texts that is attached in a case to the doorpost of a Jewish house as a sign of faith. And he wanted that for the gates of his castle because it had more special hoodoo, I guess, than anything that they could come up with. All right, it seems so contradictory. But like we said, all of this is. (laughs) So in the Middle Ages, the arraignment for sorcery was so frequent and caused so much loss of life as well as sheer misery to medieval Jewries that rabbis often found it necessary to advise suspension of such important rituals as the cleansing of the house and Passover, lest the Gentile population bring accusations of magical practices. Many traditional observances were affected by this atmosphere, like the funeral practices of binding the head and overturning the bed. And some of these traditions have like disappeared forever. Like they don't, they never made a comeback. But accusations of sorcery assumed many different forms. Benevolent aspects included fortune telling, interpretation of dreams, location of buried treasure, knowledge of the magical attributes of jewels and rainmaking. Other charges, which also parallel the allegations made against witches, were of a more threatening nature. Jews were said to be capable of transformation into a cat, the witch is familiar, and to have powers of summoning up demons and evil spirits. And while Al-Qadir may be associated with um, the idea of the wandering Jew, although obviously not a direct translation, He's also tied to St. George. Some people have gone the St. Germain way and tied him to other characters throughout literature and history, such as the Green Knight and Sir Gawain and and the Green Knight, because he tests the knight's faith three times. You said Gawain. It's right. I hate it. It's like I know that Alexander Crowley is Crowley, but I say Crowley. (laughs) It's like, but... Wait, doesn't Ozzy say Crowley in the song, in the Black Sabbath song? Uh, yeah, but to I, me that makes it's not it right. a primary that source. Makes, no, yes, it is. He peed on the Alamo. Exactly. He's not right. <laughs> I think he's a primary source. But now Saint Germain was often cited at the time as possibly being the Wandering Jew. So, like, you hear tones of that, and like the the Duke saying that he had heard he was nothing more than a Portuguese Jew. And of course it was all the rage at court to talk about the possibility that he was Ahasuerus, the wandering Jew. Much speculation was thrown out. Now the Count did have sort of a nondescript appearance, but it was definitely something that could be perceived as ethnic if you wanted to. Um, He had dark eyes and olive skin, aquiline nose. Did he have like big black hair? Sometimes, but he wore the wigs. You Not know? always. When yeah. things you read, they were like, he doesn't wear, he wears only his real hair. I can't believe. Coming out everywhere, all over his head. But yeah, so there, there's a kind of ambiguous appearance, but a lot of people do sort of, because he has these mystical characteristics, and at the time, mysticism and the occult are so tied to this magic Jew theory, which is so racist or anti-Semitic or whatever it is, awful. 
like just because he's magic they're like so clearly this is him and maybe it is once okay let's play let's play let's say they're all the same person definitely yeah clearly of course they are like are you waiting for me to rebut this like (laughs) yeah let's play let's let's go along with this okay so my theory assuming that they're all the same person and i couldn't do this for all of history because you know time what do you mean we're back down to adam okay fine true I couldn't go this in depth throughout history. But my theory is that this St. Germain character that we have said is all these other characters is like the obelisk in 2001. Oh, we're going back to monkeys. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come on. Come on. Back to the... So he appears whenever something important is going to happen. Like to push it along. Yes. And I think you see this especially strongly in the 1700s. Yeah. Where there are so many revolutions taking place and the spirit of democracy is spreading. So he's Saint Germain, patron saint of Revolution. Revolution. Red, the blood of angry men. Green. Green. No. So we know that it he just is, means gray in Arabic. <laughs> so we know that he is tied with according to all of this, that he is tied with Catherine the Great taking the throne. Yes. He is tied with the Seven Year War and then the French Revolution. Yes. And And what was he spying about in England? The Jacobites. Right. And he's all tied up in that. And he's part of the Russo-Turkish War. So because we are egocentric narcissists and we have a microphone, I don't think that this exploration of the Count's history can be complete until he has his Eddie Murphy moment. Eddie Murphy moment? Coming to America. Ah, uh, so You just Jerry Curl commercial me? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Right, so I mean, if all of these revolutions and important things are happening, nothing more important happened. Ever. <laughs> Ever. Ever. In the entirety of the world than 1776. True that. All right. I mean... We got a musical out of it. A few. (laughs) Several. We've taken up that subject matter once or twice. So there's this idea that in Trumbull's painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Which is the the painting. The one you were thinking of. That's it. In the Capitol is on the back of the $2 bill. Yes, there is a $2 bill. TJ's on the front. Mine and his own. But in this painting, near the elbow of one Benjamin Franklin... I know that guy. There is a man who looks strikingly, alarmingly, like Count St. Germain. No. So, because it's basically a photograph and no government documents exist to verify who this individual is, clearly it's St. Germain. Just kidding. Yeah, because, I mean, they all look alike. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody in a powdered wig, all you old pasty white guys, you all look alike. Just kidding, though. There is actually... You know, some pretty comprehensive government documentation of who this is supposed to be. And who is that? Well, it's a man who just had his bus taken down at his university that's named after him because he was a slave owner. Robert E. Lee? No. <laughs> I was shocked to learn that, but uh, it is Richard Stockton. Who's this guy? So he was the only signer of the Declaration of Independence to be captured by the British during the Revolutionary War. So he's a winner. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there were other like battlefield captures, but this is this guy was captured because he signed the declaration. 
Now, he was against independence in 1774, but he had a grand awakening in 1775 and was suddenly for independence. He saw the guys being tarred and feathered. He was like, like, I'm on board. He was offered a position as the chief justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court, but he turned it down in order to keep freedom fighting. And this was a massive turn in his character. Like, this is not something you saw coming if you looked at his life before 1775. It's very out of character for him to turn in this appointment. Was he a spy? No, he was St. Germain. Get on the boat. Come on, get on board. St. Germain was a spy. Yeah, he was. So, anyway. Shh. (laughs) So, in September of 1776, Richard Stockton went to Fort Ticonderoga, Saratoga, and Albany to help the Continental Army. And on his return to the Continental Congress, he took a detour and went to go try to get his wife and family to safety. At which time, he and his friend, John Covenhoven. Is that a real name? I hope so, and I don't care if I'm saying it wrong. John Covenhoven and Richard Stockton were captured. And according to... The documents at the time, while he was in the accommodation (laughs) of the British, he may have, you know, slipped and accidentally signed a loyalty oath to King George. Oh, it was just an accident. My pen just Whoopsie doopsie. And he was eventually released, but documents indicate that they did not wait for an exchange. They just let him go. Spy. Well, or he really did. He was like, hey, I never wanted to do this in the first place. Please just let me sign the oath. I'll go back and I'll be a good boy. He retired from politics. He did sign an agreement to never return to political life. And he went back home. But here's my theory. St. Germain in his all-knowingness, in his divinity of sorts, ad hoc divinity, his various Masonic connections, knew that there was this fellow, Richard Stockton, who looked a lot like him. And so he comes to America in 1775 Prince and Popperism? Prince and Popperism. Kind of man in the Aaron mask him. Yeah. <laughs> and he takes his place and is the first person to sign the Declaration of Independence. Like, guys, I'm signing first. Move out of the way. Yeah. Didn't he just say that we should not do this? Be loyalists? But wait. But he, like, pushes to the front of the line. Like, and legit, like, seriously, historical fact, Richard Stockton is the first signer of the Declaration. Now, I thought it was John Hancock. No. I heard someone say that when we were there. No, you didn't. I literally did. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, John Hancock's signature is so big because he Finest paid for it. it. Yeah, you get the big signature if you pay for it. Everyone knows that. That's like American AF. Yeah, that is like <laughs> the most American thing that's happened. So, yeah, my theory is that he like locks him up for a year. And then in September, he's like, okay, I've really kind of done my bit. I need to get back to Europe. They're going to be looking for me. Good luck with your revolution, guys. Richie, go play with the British. So he signs loyalty oath. He takes years to recover from his illness. Mm-hmm. Says Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush was his buddy. Yeah, but physician. Sign of the Declaration of Independence. And never takes his position as Chief Justice. Right. And just kind of retires and goes off to live the rest of his life. Right. And he eventually dies when he his lip cancer oh my. spreads to his throat and stuff. But when I was looking through my historical research, which I actually did do for this crazy ass theory, I came across the eulogy that was read at his burial. And it was given by Samuel Smith. And he said, Behold, my brethren, before your eyes, a most sensible and affecting picture of the transitory nature of mortal things. In the remains of a man who hath long been among the foremost of his country for power, for wisdom, and for fortune, whose eloquence only wanted 
a theater like Athens to have rivaled the Greek and Roman fame, and who, if what honors this young country can bestow, if many and great personal talents could save a man from the grave, would not thus have been lamented here by you. Behold there an end to all perfection. Such was the man whose remains now lie before us to teach us the most interesting lessons that mortals have to learn, the variety of human things, the importance of eternity, the holiness of divine law, the value of religion, and the certainty and rapid approach of death. Well, that can be read into. Right? <laughs> if we're going along with the crackpot theories. Oh, this is, this is the time. This is the time. <laughs> and so I have one more. One more revolution where good old St. G showed up. What's left? I mean, all the good ones are taken. <laughs> you don't remember? Oh, I do remember. I remember the Alamo. Exactly. <laughs> There's a basement. Yes. There's a bicycle there. We saw it. We did. So you'll remember, because you've been listening so closely to all of our crazy. What? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. You'll remember that someone said St. Germain had a Mexican bride of great yes. wealth. He stole her jewels and ran off to Constantinople. You were listening. A little. <laughs> well, you know who else had a Mexican bride who mysteriously disappeared, leaving him some wealth? Who? Jim Bowie. <gasps> So, Jim Bowie was one of the Alamo defenders and a crackerjack frontiersman. He had a big knife. I know that. He was also friends with John Lafitte. Now, wait. The staying off of the Alamo, no one survived. Well, there were rumors at the time that Bowie, who was ill, like he had his cot carried across the line in the sand drawn by Travis, like in true Texas melodrama That's fashion. Yes, it is. He was ill at the time. And there were rumors that he was carried out alive by the invading forces. And there was much consternation about the whereabouts of his remains because it was said that he was perceived as such a valiant hero because he fought from his sick bed with his knives and his guns and his back against the wall. <laughs> that the Mexicans decided that he should not be burned with all the rest of the defenders. It was a complete massacre. If you don't know about the Alamo, like everyone who defended the Alamo except the non-combatants was killed and burned. But Bowie was said to, I'm saying Bowie, I can't help it. I don't mean David, RIP. But Bowie was said to have been buried instead of burned because he was so valiant. There are other stories that he was carried out on his cot. But at any rate, he was the one that was sort of like mythologized to have survived, conjectured to have survived. And his brother supposedly wrote an account of his life, but everything his brother wrote was later found to be kind of not true. Really? Yeah. So his whereabouts before the Alamo are very curious. It was also noted that he was very, very fluent in Spanish, which is interesting for a guy who lived in Louisiana. Even if it was Spanish Louisiana at the time, he lived in Kentucky the majority of his life. And that's odd. But anyway... If you look at pictures of Bowie besides St. Germain, it's interesting, and that's my crazy. Right, because the story of Jim Bowie was definitely romanticized mm -hmm. later when his brother wrote about it. Oh, yes. And it became, just like the Fountain of Youth, just like Fonce Leon, an American legend. Right. A legend of the West. West being Louisiana. <laughs> Texas. So, just a little more nonsense to flesh out and finish up our story of St. Germain. You might recall that he told Baron Linden that he loved him, 
And that he would be back in 85 years. See you soon, honey. Yes. And his grave was destroyed in a storm surge in 1872. 85 years after his death. It's like 84 and a half, but we're going to let it slide. Now, St. Germain, France, is somewhere to attract my attention, obviously, because he is in France and he is saying he's the Count of St. Germain. So let's look into that. Now, what happened in St. Germain after the American Revolution? The Treaty of Paris was signed. That is very true. And Benjamin Franklin was there along with John Jay and John Adams. And during the French Revolution, the king and queen were moved to the Towers of the Knights Templar in that city. And eventually, the political prisoners being held in St. Germain were all housed in an abbey there. And they were former aristocrats and cultural figures, the people who would have been rubbing elbows with St. Germain. But that did not go well. That did not go well. There was a massacre. They started to be perceived as more of a legitimate threat than originally thought. And so some criminals were rounded up and given pitchforks and stakes and told to go dispatch them. Go ahead. Go have fun. At which time these streets ran with blood. Ran with blood as previously prophesied by the original St. G. Now, it's interesting that they were in the Tower of the Knights Templar. Very much. Because he was very much associated, and especially Cagliostro as well, with the Masons. Now, St. Germain was also the site of the first Masonic Lodge in France. And legend has it that this first lodge was founded by Jacobites in exile. And if we remember, St. G did help out with the Jacobite Rebellion. And this one was supposedly called the Lodge of Perfect Equality, and it formed in 1688 by Charles II of England. And by the time of the French Revolution, there were 1,250 lodges in France, so it had really taken hold. And while serving as an envoy from America, Benjamin Franklin was a member of a Masonic Lodge in France, and he helped organize support for the American cause from the French. Yeah, so that was his job. And that's where we got Marquis de Lafayette coming over with his force. Which, interestingly, I believe that St. Germain hitched his ride back. With Lafayette. With Lafayette. But that's too far. <laughs> we shall not. Okay, and there's one more St. Germain connection. So the Ecole des Beaux-Arts was founded in St. Germain as well. We discussed that on our Black Aggie episode. But there was quite a famous individual who took up residence in St. Germain at 13 Rue des Beaux-Arts in 1900. Who's that? Oscar Wilde. Okay. And there was something about that connection that just kind of fascinated me a little. Because Oscar Wilde, among his other works, wrote a picture of Dorian Gray. And Dorian Gray had an unusually long lifespan. The character remained young and beautiful, while a portrait of him, hidden away, acquired all of the marks of all of his misdeeds and all of the ugliness that he had to experience or perpetuate. And that fascinated me in light of our story of St. Germain because it kind of returned to this idea of immortality or extreme longevity being a curse. Now, Oscar Wilde was also a Freemason. Of course he was. Which I have a hard time imagining. Really? Yeah, I guess the pageantry. I could yeah, I could get into yeah. it, I guess. But then I thought about him when I thought about that quote uh, from St. Germain where he's like, I always knew Christ would meet a bad end. Oscar like that Wilde sounds like that. an Oscar Wilde quote. Oscar Wilde was 46 when he died in St. Germain. But he'd written 
this line, which I also found really interesting. He said, death must be so beautiful to lie in the soft brown earth with the grasses waving above one's head and listening to silence. To have no yesterday and no tomorrow, to forget time, to forget life, to be at peace. And I think we can look at these stories surrounding eternal youth. Those that seek it have trouble finding it. Those that have it might see it as a curse. And yeah, I'm not saying Oscar Wilde faked his own death and he's still alive somewhere, living out yet another incarnation of St. Germain. But I'm saying he was in a place that bore the name of the Eternal Count and he contemplated immortality at the time of his death. And he preferred the soft brown earth and peace in no time instead of all the time in the world. And maybe the quality of life that makes it most worth having is that we can't have it forever and that we really are forced to make the most of the time we have. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. <laughs>